Kyle. Put them on. Sorry, Henri. I'll have to just apply them in post. Bennett. <laughs> it's just going to do the... Bennett, do the thing. <laughs> We're only like, what, two years late on this yeah. meme? Yeah. No, this is years beyond that. Yeah, oh, yeah. only just, like ten years too late for this. Yeah, meme. We're like te- we're like a decade late. It's on like this. the original <laughs> meme. Yeah, <laughs> we're here for it though. David's here for it, yeah. especially. Why are we taking them off? Hey, everybody! Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, politics, and culture. Where it's always our mission to arm you with the tools you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mono narrative. Today, we have a very special friend of the show back with us, Henri Pellerin, founder and editor of LibertyPortal.com. How are you, friend? I'm great, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's good to be back after all this time. You know, I stepped out for milk and cigarettes like nine months ago. (laughs) Where did you go, Daddy? Now I'm back. I'm never going to leave. He went to Iowa. That's where he went. He went to Iowa. Eat that mic a little bit. Get up in there. Get up in there. All right. That's like a podcast stereotype isn't it it's like riding a bike like tell somebody yeah yeah so uh today we're talking about trump dominates iowa caucus with a historic landslide primary victory surprising almost nobody except for the folks at msnbc uh (laughs) the wef uh, meets for hookers and world domination and third uh middle east is blowing up with a regional war potentially we got new countries involved it's like a new draft of sorts uh we got pakistan joining the fight yemen saudi arabia and russia all involved uh, we'll get into that at the end of the like day. the NBA draft. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's kind of like that. We're just a lot more, a lot more people getting involved and a lot more war. Yeah, yeah, a lot more war. Yeah, fair it's enough. Kind of thing to laugh at and also cry about. And also subscribe to us. <laughs> That's right. We we demand your subscription, please. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we do. Uh, wherever you end up, right? YouTube, yeah. uh, YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, wherever Apple Podcasts. I don't know whatever people use these days. I'm, seems- I'm more of a YouTube guy myself, but. Yeah, I like the video component. I think our show is best best observed visually, right? Yeah. Although I have heard uh, from some friends that uh, we have great podcast voices. So, you know, oh, yeah, if you're just listening, listen podcast to the sultry tones. Yeah, there's also, uh, we also have our social media stuff that is out there. And TikTok is currently blowing up and we are so close to a thousand followers. Yes. So if you aren't following us on social media, definitely go on our TikTok, follow us there, get us to a thousand uh, we recently had a clip go to 13,000 people when we're talking about Epstein stuff. So One and, of mine uh, went to 33,000. Yeah, Kyle's yeah. still the reigning champ, though, at like, at, what, at like 42? 65 or is something. It, yeah, is it that high yeah, now? I, I don't remember. Well, yeah, it, it depends because like TikTok, Instagram, we have like... I got 44, it, It's a variation. But yeah, we do have one on Instagram. Yeah. That one really big. And then Instagram screwed us since then. They're yeah, like, Mark Zuckerberg has decided that yeah. we don't <laughs> deserve to talk to anyone on his products, yeah. on his platform, so... Fuck you, Mark. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, and while you're uh, following people on social media, you can go to uh, follow me at Liberty Portal. On yes. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff there. Dude, yeah, your and, Twitter and, has been on fire lately. I yeah, appreciate it. In yeah. in the uh, the moment that was the lead up to the Iowa caucus, and then since then, it's been really awesome to follow your experience. Why don't you like walk us through what that was all like? Like, when did you decide to go, and, and yeah, how did that come yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting start to the year for me, and and I don't want to get too like metaphysical or, or or whatever, but it really does feel like uh, like God has been you know winking at me, so to speak, and um, yeah, just some remarkable things have happened I, I, that I can't really disclose, but um, I've been following uh, Vivek you know, since last year and through the debates and all these incredible moments and 
like a lot of us in the liberty movement, I've just been really impressed by this guy. And I kind of realized, you know, um, his campaign's probably not going to be very long-lived. And if I wanted to have a moment where I might get to meet him or, or ask him a question, I, I should probably go to Iowa. Um, and, and everybody's been seeing all these events he's been doing. And, and it, so there's plenty of opportunity for that kind of thing. So I, I got the, the notion, I'm going to go to Iowa. And um, while I'm at it, I might as well, you know, see if I can ask him a question. And so I, uh, I book my flight, I go to Iowa. Um, it's, it's snowing like crazy. Like everything you saw from, you know, whatever influencers you're following, like was legit. Like even as a person from Montana, the, the, the snow was unreal. And, and here's Vivek, you know, with all his energy and, and doing six events a day, traversing the whole state. I mean, unbelievable. You know, uh, I mean, I, I was exhausted you know, after my trip and, and I, I went to two of his events all, all in all, you know, so I, um, I had the opportunity. I, 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 I got to, I went into to Sioux city and, uh, he was having an event at a, uh, a Hampton Inn there. Um, so stayed at the hotel, um, that morning, you know, I, I, I had a conversation with a really nice, uh, uh, gentleman who, Later, I found out it was Congressman Steve King. I, didn't realize, <laughs> you know, I, I like I, I follow politics enough to like to know like who Steve King is, but not to like recognize his face, you know. And so I had this really awesome conversation with him. Super nice guy. Um, I got to ask him some questions. I put it out to to people on Twitter. You know, what would you like me to ask him? You know, so I don't know if any, if anybody saw the clip. I think you guys might have uh, shared it um, on the, a previous episode, but. You know, I got to ask him about his his takes on uh, military conscription and the Fed, and um, you know his his plan to back the the uh, the dollar with a basket of currencies, um, which or, or commodities, right? Oh, that's what I, yeah, yeah, with a basket of commodities. Yeah, thanks. So first of all, um, the energy around him is legit, uh, or you know that that energy around that campaign campaign was legit. I was not the only person at that Hampton Inn who had flown in from out of state. Wow. Um, and, you know, he, he just is this this magnet that, that people want to experience, you know? What do you think that is? Is it his his uh, youth, the fact that he's, like, more relatable to people like us? Is it the novelty of his message? What is the, the attraction about there? I mean, I can only speak for myself. And for me, it is he's, he's just such an impressive person. Um, and I wanted to see if it was legit, you know, I, I wanted to, to see if, you know, is this just something that is kind of, you know, doctored for the camera and then behind the scenes, it, it, you know, sometimes you, you meet somebody who's famous and, and you kind of get disappointed. Um, that was, that was absolutely not the case. I mean, um, you know, and, and I would also add, you know, I, I threw three questions at him, like three, three random questions. Like it wasn't screened or anything. I mean, just, just try to imagine, you know, Biden or Kamala Harris, like trying to field those three questions. AI or, is kind of a fancy thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, I would, I would say, um, you know, I, I posted about this yesterday, actually. So it, with regard to, uh, Vivek's idea to back the uh, the dollar with a basket of commodities. I, I think it's um, 
I love the spirit of what he's trying to do. Um, and you could look to uh, Hayek wrote an essay in the later portion of his career where he recommended essentially the same thing. But that was he was criticized by Murray Rothbard for for a couple of reasons. For one, um, having a currency like that fails what you know Mises called the regression theorem. You know, a, a currency needs to needs to emerge out of barter. Um, and then it can become a, a money. Um, so just a basket of commodities doesn't necessarily emerge out of, out of barter like that. Um, and then the other thing is, it's, it's one thing to, to fix a, a currency to, say, one commodity, like the gold standard. Um, but Rothbard you know, wrote in both uh, his History of Money and Banking in the United States, as well as Man, Economy, and State, about the problems of bimetallism. So having gold attached to silver and both being fixed to the dollar, what that does is it, it becomes a price fixing scheme between gold and silver. Hmm. Um, so now you've got a situation where at all times, gold and silver are going to be over or undervalued relative to each other. Um, Gresham's law comes into play. And so like if you're going to fix the, the currency to a basket of commodities, you're just going to do that amongst a broader, you know, I think Vivek specifically mentioned gold, silver, nickel, and maybe some agricultural commodities. Um, So you would just create a big price fixing scheme. I think it would be a a step in the right direction compared to the current um, paradigm. It's still better than fiat, right? right, Yeah, (laughs) it's still better, but um, it, it has its flaws. You know, the other thing, Vivek's answer about why not the gold standard, uh, was that the gold gold is too volatile um and i mean that's not really uh in evidence of you know the history of the gold standard both here and in europe um where over long periods of time i mean yeah you have some some fluctuations but the trend over long periods of time is is consistently that uh the prices come down well and isn't it not too that gold is volatile in dollars perhaps also due to the manipulation of the money supply of dollars i think if you're looking at um you know since brenton woods um gold's volatility has more to do with the dollar's volatility than it does to do with gold so Hmm. um but nonetheless you know vivek has has these really interesting well thought out detailed ideas um and he had this uh just just amazing campaign that he was running that everybody wanted to be a part of, you know? And so I I got to experience that. I got to shake the man's hand. I asked him some questions. um, And, you know, I thought that that was going to be my trip. You know, I I had planned to just fly in and fly out the next day. Um, So, you know, I uh, go to the airport the following day and um, the, the snow is, like I said, crazy. So my flight keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And I was supposed to, have like these multiple connections um and i remember like i was supposed to fly out at one o'clock by the time like four o'clock rolled around i started thinking to myself like i should just cancel my flight go rent a car and start driving back to montana that's gonna be the fastest way i get home Hmm. and uh i didn't do it so probably for the best that's a long drive right right and so i keep waiting uh 5 30 rolls around i'm like all right this is stupid if I get on this plane, I'm just going to be stuck in Chicago. It's going to be a mess. They're going to lose my luggage. So I'm going to cancel my flight, you know, go through all that process. And then I go to the rental car counter 
and they're closed because it's Sioux City. It's a small town, and like they close at five o'clock. Mm. I'm like, oh, oh man, what, <laughs> what am I gonna do? And uh, so I, I didn't, you know, I'm just kind of like I'm exhausted, and uh, I'm like, I'm just gonna go back to the hotel, figure this all out in the morning. That night, I sent out a tweet because I was watching the Vakes campaign. He did an event at some pub. I forgot what city. Uh, Malcolm Flex was there. Uh, if you guys follow Malcolm Flex, a great account on X. Um, and uh, after the after the event, I was watching Malcolm Flex and, and Vivek just having a conversation. And Malcolm was talking about, you know, I came all the way out here from Alabama. And so I, I tweeted about that. And I said, you know, Malcolm Flex came all the way out here from Alabama. I came all the way out here from Montana. You know, people want to see this guy. This is real or something to that effect. And Vivek retweeted my my tweet, you know, and, and then I found out. Uh, <laughs> then I found out that, uh, you know, the next day I'm, I'm kind of looking around online and I find out that uh, that night Tim Poole was having this uh, town hall event at the Vivek headquarters in Des Moines. And... Um, Afterwards, there's going to be a, a a party, like an after party, open to the public, and so you know. Oh, and by and by the way, I couldn't rebook my flight for that day to leave Sioux City because I had already canceled it. Mm. Um, so I the, I the earliest I could fly out was going to be Thursday. So I I, I kind of realized again it was like it was as if God was saying like you're not done here in Iowa. You got sucked into orbit. You got to go to Des Moines, (laughs) you know? And so I booked my flight to leave from Des Moines on Thursday, rented a car, and I just started driving to Des Moines, and I'm, like, documenting my experience along the way. Um, You know, I roll up to the the Vivek headquarters, and there's some staffer outside. Um, Oh, actually, I got to step – I got to take a step back. So uh, when I asked Vivek the question uh, at the Hampton Inn, I – I coined the term Ramaswamy tsunami. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, were you the one that coined that? That's the first I, like, time I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. And so, because I've seen just people saying it all. Oh over yeah, there. yeah. So, so actually, uh, this, I, I'm surprised I, I forgot to like mention this. So, so like for for like days and weeks leading up to the event, I started like po- like like mentioning Ramaswamy tsunami like in little like dropping it here and there on Twitter, you know, because um, it's not a, it wasn't a prediction. It was never a prediction. It was about more about persuasion and uh projection it's like this is what this is what i would like to happen you know and and, and and it's like you're you're seeing a certain energy that is coming behind him and that's a very important thing for like the culture behind the gop because it's showing where the direction is moving really Mm -hmm. yeah like we we didn't expect vivek to win iowa necessarily right i mean so uh cernovich has made this this point you know really well that going from unrecognized to eight percent is actually a significant accomplishment it's far more of an accomplishment than say ron DeSantis coming in with a lot of national recognition Mm -hmm. being this like known figure in politics spending 200 million dollars spending 200 million Mm dollars yeah exactly like so you know there uh so i i I, i'm a student of uh robert cialdini's books you know the persuasion books if you're not familiar they're really good books um, and so there's, there's these, uh, kind of tricks and tactics, you know, you make it rhyme, you make it visual, uh, you make it like something that's like kind of fun that people want to be a part of. And so I, I, I started my question by saying like, we don't need a red wave. 
we need a Ramaswamy tsunami. And, and it was, <laughs> it was clearly the first time that Vivek had heard the term, you know, if you go back and watch the video, he, uh, he starts to chuckle and he's like, that's, I like that. And then, uh, he held, uh, after the events over, he held a press conference outside of the hotel and he used the term Ramaswamy tsunami. <laughs> yeah. And so then I started making memes. So like, um, if you if you guys saw like I made the Mickey Mouse meme yeah. where it was like just Mickey Mouse saying Ramaswamy tsunami, I made the one with um, uh, it's like the car veering off the off the highway, yeah, you know, yeah, and it's yeah. like red wave Ramaswamy tsunami. So I made a couple of these memes and like they started going you know like throughout the internet. Um, so it was like it was a really surreal experience like to you know kind of have like pushed this snowball down the hill and it turns into an avalanche. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I guess you could say like the Ramaswamy tsunami didn't, didn't happen. Maybe it did. I don't know. Like maybe like, cause it, it did, it was so much fun. Like people were, were energized and, you know, I feel like rallying behind this, this Ramaswamy tsunami thing. Well, I think it's a really interesting thing that it, it, it actually might have happened just in maybe in a different way than we expected. Right. I mean, it would have been an absolute come from nowhere long shot for him to win Iowa right. against Trump's poll numbers. Right. But what did happen with the fact that he didn't win Iowa, but then the very next day was on the Trump campaign trail uh, was pretty impactful. And we've already seen a couple of things come from that. It seems like Trump coming out and promising no CBDC was a big one oh, that yeah. you have to think was probably influenced by Vivek or that world in some way appealing to Vivek's voter base, which is predominantly younger, predominantly internet based, much more savvy with internet, uh, you know, lingo and obviously cryptocurrency and everything around that. So it seems like maybe the, the energy of that has, has been pushed into the Trump orbit and is maybe starting to have an impact on that campaign. Well, and that's the big thing too, right? Is we've been, we've talked about is it's becoming cool to be on this side again and it's becoming lame to be like on the other side where it used to be the inversion of mostly because of us ago. i would say mostly yeah. because yeah. of this yeah. podcast yeah. really <laughs> we're, we're the cool kids at the table um but i i think that's where it is is like there's a fun energy that's being had mm-hmm. it's like where all the the comedy is it's where all the fun it's all where all the entertainment is it's where like the most entertaining podcasters are right now they're all in this like ethos mm-hmm. right and where everybody else is just, it just kind of feels ugh. like it just feels lame. Establishment. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's boomer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. David, what are your, what are your thoughts on the, on the Ramaswamy tsunami and how the, the effect <laughs> since the Iowa caucus? Well, I mean, I thought, uh, so the polling actually came out to be very accurate. I mean, everyone pretty much got within the margin of where it was predicted. Uh, Ramaswamy didn't overperform, but he didn't underperform. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I, of course, out of the primary, I mean, we were the Vivek fan club going into it. So I was uh, very much like his ideas. The question, it seems like to me, is this the big sad or was this the plan all along? Like, was his plan to get onto the Trump campaign to do this or was this... Uh, is this a, a, he's not a plan overt? B kind of guy? Yeah, he's yeah, not plan B. That's what he said. No, but but he never actually told us, you know, <laughs> that this wasn't plan A. Well, yeah. it was actually, plan the only a way really? for it to be the plan is to say that no. There I is think no plan I think B, he right? he set himself up to have multiple ways to win. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's clearly now. Um, you know, many people are saying he's he's the future of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. 
Um, which to me as a, as like an ANCAP libertarian, it's like, yeah, he doesn't represent me a hundred percent, but I think it's amazing that, that somebody like that is who people are, are looking at as, you know, potentially a, a favorite to be the VP for, for Donald Trump. He's already influencing Trump, you know, seems like significantly, um, whether or not he's the VP or not, I think he's definitely got a future in politics. I think his shot at becoming the president eventually is is very, you know, very good. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a he set himself up to to yeah, winning the presidency was a long shot. I I didn't go to Iowa thinking that he was the favorite to to mm-hmm. win Iowa. Mm-hmm. I will say I was I I was thinking that he was gonna gonna overperform. I, I thought he was going to, you know, have a good shot to, to get second place. Um, and unfortunately that just wasn't the case, yeah. but, but he, he had a very strong ROI on his investment. Cause he spent what, yeah, $20 million, dollars? 20 to 30 million. Yeah. Tw- like 20 to $30 million for as an investment to have a very strong future of probably the next 40 years in politics. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like that's, that's a pretty strong investment I would say. And you know, as like, politics he's a tends to make name too, right? Like everybody knows who Vivek is now. It's right. just whether or not they agree with him or whatever, but like right. people know who he is. Like he's become a cultural figure and well, that's pretty strong branding for and $20 also million. Noting the, the demographics of Iowa, right? It's a very Christian, very white, very like very old school boomer oh, state, yeah. right? So the fact that he's able to pull 8% out of there is no small thing. Um, and additionally that his number one competitor is, you know, a former president, right? For yeah. that voting block that he's and one of the most for. famous people in the world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like, you know, it's not, um, it, it definitely, it's, it's, I think it's an incredible accomplishment he was able to do. Uh, and I think a big, big part of it too is it does make sense that it's a plan, right? Um, Biden won the independent vote against Trump. He got way more third party and independence votes than Trump did in, than he did in 2016. Um, so 2016, uh, Trump overperforms in independence and libertarians. In 2020, Biden overperforms. So uh, dis, uh, I think Vivek is a huge asset to the Trump campaign in as much as he can appeal to those groups, young people, independence, libertarians. So For sure. that's, yeah. I think those are, that's, that's the, the, the 40 chess of the thing that you could appeal to. That yeah, Vivek is galvanizing the libertarian and independent and young vote and under 40. into the Trump campaign. Yes. Totally. I think that's really smart. Well, and, and Trump's got the boomers on lock. Like boomer conservatives, he's got them. Except for some, you know, white suburban women. Yeah, like, white, but the ones but, that but determine even, the election they, private even equity they, wives. Even <laughs> they turned a lot in part to Trump in Iowa, it seemed like, uh, yeah. on the numbers I saw. Um, so we'll see we'll see with that. You but guys, there is a strong coalition. He still has yeah. he still has suburban weakness and high education weakness. That's his two major demographics. A lot of those people are going to Biden anyways, though. Right. So, well, I mean, yeah. typically classically in the classic model. It's the suburban vote is the is the swing vote that determines the elections when it's closed, mm-hmm. right? So that's the question. And then and then you know if you look at Biden's numbers, they're stupid low, right? His favorability, all that kind of stuff is is his uh, numbers against Trump in like places like Georgia have dropped eight points uh, since you know mid last year. So like that sort of those sort of things you look to, it it looks very much in in, in Trump's favor, but. Even if it's it's the turnout model question, how much of the turnout's going to happen, and then what happens with that suburban vote? Because high education still, you know, that's they almost always go. Well, Democrat, and but. Vivek acting as a surrogate for the campaign, whether or not he's VP or not down the road, he's going to boost enthusiasm for get out the vote yeah. pretty strongly. 
unlike the Biden camp, like a lot of the Biden camp, they're just they're not that enthusiastic. They just don't like Trump. Right. And, and that's not enough to really drive massive get out the vote, like culturally speaking. So I, I think Vivek kind of joining the campaign in whatever capacity he's going to be there in the long run is only a boon for the Trump. Oh, yeah. Camp. I'm not mad at that yeah. at all. And I mean, so what do you guys think about, um, you know, his odds or the uh, let's say let's say what are his odds of being the VP? And also, you know, regardless of the odds, is it a good is it a good move for Trump? Is it a good move for Vivek? That's a really uh, interesting question. I mean, uh, hard to hard to tell what the odds are. Um, I thought the the body language and the conversation around the body language at that awkward, first yeah. speech where Trump brings Vivek up and then Vivek kind of just goes off on what felt sort of like a Vivek campaign it speech did, yeah. it was, and Trump standing back it, it, there. It was his talking points, right? Like yeah. the 1776 moment. It's all except, that stuff. Except right? all he was saying is like, but this guy's going to do it for you. Not me. Right. He just kept pointing and this right. man is going to do it. No other candidate's going to do it. It's almost as yeah. if he was painting Trump a little bit into a corner, you know, yeah. saying I, you're going to carry my that's, platform. What you're seeing is like two alphas, you know, fighting for dominant position on the stage. And um, it, it's interesting because that's where I think uh, the odds of Vivek becoming the VP, is, it, it hurts him, you know, because Trump, uh, I don't know that he, he can allow somebody to outshine him that much. Mm hmm. Um, Although I could see, and this really depends because Trump is a good strategist in the long run. I've come to realize this over time. And I think that he is looking towards the potential future of somebody that might be carrying on the legacy in the future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people can think about whatever they want with Trump's ego, but I think there is an element of he is concerned about legacy and seeing who might carry the torch onward after that. And like, cause there, there was the whole moment in the campaign where uh, the day before Iowa, where Trump put out the, the, the post on truth social mm -hmm. saying that Vivek's not, not MAGA, et cetera, et cetera. The, the more I look back on that post, the more I'm thinking that that was a loyalty test oh, on yeah. Vivek. Uh, long run Trump's a very concerned with loyalty that's always been his mo is like is this person loyal or not and then that's that's usually how he justifies everything so it seemed to me that Trump was doing like you can you can finish Iowa but you have to make a decision here are you going to continue pulling eight to ten percent away from me in every state or are you going to bend the knee now and join me mm -hmm. like that seemed to be I, what the play was, was I thought point. back on that um, post I think actually that could have knocked the vague down a couple of points I know? think it did you know yeah. like um, cause yeah, the, uh, he you, probably would have been over 10% yeah. if it wasn't for that post, mm -hmm. I think. Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, actually, so just like kind of wrap up my, my Iowa story, you know, I, I, I traveled, I, I rented a car, rented a, a beautiful Chrysler minivan and drove all the way from Sioux city to Des Moines and show up there at the Vivek headquarters. Um, there's some staffer outside and I'm like, Hey, I'm the guy that uh, coined Ramaswamy Tsunami. Can yes. I come in? And he's like, yeah, yeah, come on in. <laughs> you know, and he's like, that's you your credential. You just <laughs> got on a laminate. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, you can, you can document anything you want, you know, hang out and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? Put me to work. Like, cause they were phone banking in there and stuff. And I've done phone banking, I think with all of you guys here at the table. Um, it's where I've got my phone banking experience. <laughs> um, Back and, on the campaign days. Yeah. You know, back in the Ron Paul days, and I, I think I most recently did it a couple of years ago. Just yeah, uh, yeah the, the three of us were sitting in your office. Yeah, yeah. 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 that was funny. That was actually like the the genesis of the uh, the, the the show. Podcast. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Early um, days. So, so you, anyway, you did some phone banking. I did some phone there. banking, um, 
And, you know, I, everybody that I, I, you know how these things go, like, you get you, you dial 10 people you might reach one person it's and it's like some ancient republican who's like i'm voting for trump you know like that's that's so like the writing was kind of on the wall but anyway so like i set myself up in like a corner of the room because i just wanted to be out of you know everybody else's way there's some like couches behind me and i'm sitting there for a couple of hours just smiling dialing you know whatever next thing i know like tim pool and Ian Crossland and Phil Labonte and um uh oh who's, who's Serge? No, uh so Tim, Ian, Phil, there was who's the who's, oh Luke, Luke Rakowski. Oh they're nice. All, they're all sitting on the on the couches behind me and they're just like having conversations. And I'm like, uh I, I can't I can't do this phone banking thing anymore. I'm like just like paying attention to them. Like I'm getting looped into the conversations. You know, like these guys are they're all they're all amazing people uh from like just just from what you see online but uh you know like tim is like exactly like who who he appears to be like just very type a like high energy you know at one point he he was like i had to explain the vake had this pile of like you know those like inflatable noisemakers that people have at basketball games you know like oh yeah he had a pile of those and, and tim's like the hell are these and i like showed him how to use them and then he's like going over to luke and like banging them in luke's face and <laughs> like luke is like the chillest dude you've ever met unless uh, you're talking about the illuminati and then he's not yeah yeah <laughs> i mean like he can definitely get amped up you know on, on like when he's doing a show but like from what i my interactions with him like super chill guy phil very nice ian like sweetest dude um you know, and then like next thing you know, Candace Owens walks in, and uh, and, and we're just having like a conversation about like my honeymoon, and like Candace is, uh, I mean, I've, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting a, a handful of you know rather famous people in this world, and um, she is like one of the nicest. I mean, just like I think the mark of of these uh, sort of internet pundit type of people is you know do they treat you like an equal or do they, or do they like act like they're better than you? And I mean, she was just like genuinely like interested in my upcoming trip to Rome and wanted to tell me like, Oh, you should go, you know, check this spot out, that spot, you know? And she had like just had a baby. She, she had broken her foot. She was like in a, in a, in a walking boot Mm. and she's like cares about me, you know? So kudos to Candace Owens. That's uh, my experience with Candace too. I've yeah. met her too before and she was, I found her to be like a genuinely nice person. Yeah. So, you know, it was like, I don't know, like that's, that's not like world changing information, but you know, maybe that was the reason like I got stuck in Iowa and I had to, you know, what a rad experience. Yeah. It yeah. was, it was incredible. It yeah. was very strange to watch all of the kind of internet subculture people like come together for an Iowa caucus, yeah. like a presidential, like that yeah. wouldn't have happened in That's cycles. Pre- pre- no, especially around a single candidate. Yeah. Which is also an interesting. Well, well, and you see, you see them like go, going for car rides and doing car ride interviews yeah. with Vivek as he's going between events. Like so it was very some of the other people that were, that were there were uh, Mike Benz. Yeah. And yeah, I watched um, that interview. Joey Manorino. They were, they were also there, also very cool people. Um, Mike Cernovich wasn't at the party, but like he was later following Vivek leading up to like, so like I said, like just the guy's a magnet, you know, people, people, smart people notice. And yeah. I, I was watching all the uh, DeSantis folks because the DeSantis, the DeSantis surrogates are like the worst people online that I've experienced. <laughs> like they're just oh, yeah. god awful, like human beings. It seems like <laughs> like 
go think, go on I, Twitter. It's like that. Trust me. Uh, yeah. uh, but but like they're all putting up these conspiracy theories that Vivek is paying right. all these influencers to come in. But it really just seems like the energy yeah. was there. I mean, I wish Vivek had like paid me to do it. Like not that he would. You know, I don't think, and I don't think he paid Malcolm Flex or or no. Cernovich or any of these guys. I mean, from what I understand, um, Tim Pool flew Cernovich out there, uh, and I and from what I understand, Tim Pool like lost a bunch of money to to put that. Town, uh, town hall event on i mean uh, i think in, a, in so many ways he did pay people to be there in social currency right yeah. it was it was very popular to be a part of that movement within the republican party i mean vivek just represented a shift that i think a, a lot of those influencers had already attached their brands to so that was the place to be mm-hmm. so to be to see and be seen and be there was you know the uh the you know, uh, sort of libertarian Republican version of uh, the World Economic Forum, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> well and, and Vivek, Vivek really is a creature of the internet, and he understands the hive mind of it very well. And like, he's part of that culture. He under, he just very easily understands that, and he's part of it. So you have all these people that they make their money on the internet. Like, it's very natural for there to be a coalition that forms mm-hmm. just be, based off of internet subculture kind of genre, right? For sure. Right. It's, um, it was interesting that he managed to do that with substance while talking about mm-hmm. serious policy stuff and while carrying an ideological torch, I think much further than where Trump has carried it so far with specificity and interest, like getting someone mm-hmm. like Henri pumped about a campaign isn't easy to do. No. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah in fact, we could recall a tweet that you put out not too long ago saying politics is like a waste of time. But I think that's it's, it's really shows the impact that this campaign had on someone like you. It oh, it yeah. pulled you out of, you know, a relative place of like kind of apathy or or disinterest or, you know, even, you know, disdain for what the political process can be like. And that's really powerful. Right. Yeah. It, it, he he reminds me in a lot of ways of Mele. You know, yeah. even if it's even if it's not real, it's really cool that he's winning, you know, or, or gaining traction with that platform. You know, that that and, and, and by saying the things he's saying. Exactly. You know yeah, what I mean? He's like, I'm I mean. going to gut the FBI and you got people clapping. You're like, what is going yeah. on here? Like, that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. that's a di- very different moment. We're in. Well, Be- the, the, it was the, not the, clapping, but <laughs> 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 the Overton window shifted massively because of Vivek and if he's shifting the Overton window for Trump, who's already like, you know, kind of a little outside the Overton window of allowable opinion in like media circles and stuff like that, like Vivek is doing a stellar job if he can do that. Right. That's just incredible. And anyone, anyone's like trying to do purity tests on Vivek because they disagree with like 10% of him on this. It's just like, you're just not a serious person. You don't understand the game that's being played right here. Yeah. Like, like Vivek is a very important figure in the moment. If you believe in this, like these, these Liberty ideals right now, I have a question for you guys before we transition m- maybe to the Malay conversation. Cause I really want to make sure we, we talk about, Oh wait, we're not, his, we're not going to w- We have a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we, we have a ton of stuff to go I, through. I, this. I have a, I, okay. Okay. Biden, Kamala. Easy Dave. Easy. Uh, you're trying to take us somewhere else. I you know, said, I have ahead. a question. All right, go ahead. Do you guys think that Vivek being attached to the Trump campaign, whatever way that he is, is going to actually influence libertarian minded people to vote for Trump? Yeah. It depends on the element in which he's there. I mean, I don't think he has to be VP to do that, to be a surrogate, Um, but he definitely loses some momentum because he's no longer an active presidential candidate. Um, As VP, I don't think it actually makes a lot of sense, um, to be honest. I mean, part of it, it's like what you're saying, like, can he, you know, kind of take direction from Trump because that's what a VP does, right? You're the second. Um, as opposed to a surrogate can be much more like, hey, I'm not him, but I can. this is why I like him. 
Um, and then he has his podcast, right? So there's an influencer stuff there. There's all the internet culture stuff he currently has. He doesn't need to be VP to that. And then additionally, VP doesn't get him any regional benefits, right? Ohio is not going to go better for Trump because Vivek is on the ticket, right? But there are many states who might go better for Trump if he takes someone from that state. Does that make Interesting. Sense? So who do you think are the other front runners in that conversation? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. The meme is, is too good. <laughs> sorry, sorry. My, my, my boy Jeeves posted this and I thought it was hilarious. It's uh, This is how I see that ticket going. And it's uh, it's a meme from The Simpsons with uh, a guy with Trump shooting at another guy that's Trump <laughs> and Vivek <laughs> jumping in between it. <laughs> and Vivek is very conspicuously Apu, the uh, proprietor of Quick Mart or Quickie Mart. Of a 7-Eleven, I think. <laughs> it's, it's the analog. Yeah. Which also brings us to the other meme, uh, uh, the Babylon Bee, if we want to just take a slight detour into that. <laughs> Caused quite a stir on the internet when the Babylon Bee put out the headline that said something like... Yeah, uh, so the Babylon Bee Trump. put out a... Uh, the Trump promises Vivek an administration position running the White House 7-Eleven, and it's Vivek in a 7-Eleven t-shirt or polo in front of a 7-Eleven. And uh, Ro Khanna had some words to say about this uh well vivek ramaswamy and i disagree on foundational issues i am disgusted by the tired joke maligning him for being indian american seriously get some new material babylon b and it's it and a lot of the comments <laughs> under here had a lot to do with this but um i think vivek showed how to handle the internet um Patrick Bet David went to a 7-Eleven and got a hot dog and made a video of it saying that he loves 7-Eleven hot dogs. And Vivek said, thank you for coming and don't forget to grab a Slurpee. <laughs> so, like, that's how you handle the internet. That, and that's what I mean by him being a creature of the internet. And he, and he understands the hive mind very well. Well, and also yeah. he can play the game. It's become very clear <clears throat> that the left can't meme. The left isn't funny. And Vivek demonstrating that, like, dude, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. Like, yeah. everyone's the butt of a joke at some point. And if you can't, then, like, just go away or something you know right and, and before we leave this topic i mean the truth has to come out i mean you can call me a conspiracy theory all you want but 7-eleven was a part-time job <laughs> it's true <laughs> wow wow i don't even know what to do but i'm gonna give um, you these and we're gonna give you that moment embrace it embrace um, it are we ready <laughs> okay um we had to debut the glasses at some point well before before uh dave loses his mind let's uh go into the structure follow the outline i'm not saying that that's fine let, let's go into well, we got we got some videos to react yeah to. Let, let's okay. go, let's go into some of these videos that we have here uh where do we want to start off well do i we realized that do... since the inception of this podcast we have hosted trump speeches exactly zero times so i was thinking we would go into trump's acceptance speech uh, just so you know, and I do, I think we have to make this point because we are not informing our viewers if we don't talk about this. Trump won by 50%. Yeah. That's more than anyone else ever has. Record breaking in Iowa. Yes. So like it is, it is an incredible, you know, accomplishment that alone, right? Being a former president, he's practically incumbent, all that kind of stuff. But with very little like actual campaigning done too. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like so basically none. We have um, his speech where he talks on Biden. I thought we'd have an opportunity to react to that. So I don't want to be overly uh, rough on the president, but I have to say that he is the worst president that we've had in the history of our country. He's destroying our country. I mean, it's just like uh, he just makes that one little point, and everyone goes, "Wow!" I love, I love. I don't want to be rough on him, but 
but he's, he's just the worst. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's the, like the cable news segments dealing with it were a very interesting component of this, where like the cable news like commentariat just couldn't really handle what was happening um, by the margin, right? So they were they all showed up to Iowa just like they always do, and they all said the same things that they said in 2016, which was like, "There's a strange energy here with Trump." Like, like they've learned nothing. Yeah, it's over like the last it's six like years. all these pol- like professional political commentators couldn't even grapple with the idea that Trump would win this election. They're like, maybe he'll get it, but I don't know. Nikki Haley might have a, a strong shot at this one. It's like, Dude. This is your job. Do better. What are you doing? Well, and I think in response to this or around this conversation, the video of Michael Moore talking to an audience about Trump in 2016 resurfaced on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making, you know, he's making very cogent points. And obviously this is a guy who's very left, but he's talking about Trump in a way and, and the Trump movement in a way that he's like, this is obvious if you have any insight into middle america into working people you understand why this is a thing and then secondarily uh jamie Dimon recently comes out and starts saying sort of some of the similar things in this last week talking about how like this is a very obvious movement if you don't see it you're just you're blind to it you're not paying attention i I believe jamie Dimon said like obviously trump's got all the support and everything but what we can do is be nicer to one another (laughs) like he did something along those lines (laughs) yeah yeah true (laughs) cool man i don't know he's like he's vying for treasury secretary stuff right now so he's kind of on a press circuit and i don't know we'll have to see where that plays out but it seems like he's sort of positioning himself in the political sphere for some reason i don't know why you would want to leave a cushy job as the president of a or ceo of a bank to go so wade into this cesspool but he he already lives and bail out his own bank ah there you go yeah Yeah, that makes that makes perfect that's the game man you know this wait wait what (laughs) it's it's too big to fail it's even bigger not to fail if you are the treasury secretary (laughs) (laughs) um okay so uh yeah here is uh the political commentator corporate corpo press class uh commenting on it all when he walked in the room, uh, the reaction was electric. Everybody, there may be people here for a lot of other candidates. There was genuine excitement. Everybody stood up, gave him a standing ovation. I completely agree with you. And it's interesting. He's not, at least the part that we heard so far, he's not talking about 2020. He's not talking grievance. Although I just heard somebody scream, you didn't lose. Okay. Continue. Well, you can't help the audience. <laughs> but, but, I mean, he, he was exactly saying how much better the country was when he was president than it is now. And I, I think you're going to see, I'm told, an increasing focus on Biden and a general election in a sense that, assuming that he does well tonight, that, the, you know, let's get this nomination over with and unite and fight Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the thing that we can't lose sight of is that this really is a race between two incumbents for all intents and purposes in Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Donald Trump is one of the most famous men on the entire planet, right? It makes sense that he has been the front runner all along. And I think what really has driven that dynamic is that no other candidate has made a convincing argument against him or shown the country that they can stand up and become or be a bigger deal than he is. You know, it's so true. And what you said about the way that this room changed when he walked in and the people here realized that he was here, uh, it's a reminder that one of the main reasons that people love him and people don't love him, but in this case, it's the people who love him. It's because of not just what he says, but how they make him, how he makes them feel. It is his, um, 
the reason why he has been so incredibly successful with the people who are so incredibly stuck to him and will would walk through fire for him. And I've met a lot of people like that here in Iowa. Not to say that he'll get everybody in this room. He won't. But the, the, the passion with, that he drives in people. Have you ever seen anything like that? No. I, I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it was. It's like there's not really they're, they're still trying to explain it. They can't get a hold of it. MSNBC was all over the Internet all week trying to explain this in terms of white supremacy, of course. Uh, but even like the more trying to be middle of the road, like CNN was having a hard time really just, you know, like this. This should have been not surprising at all to these folks because uh, we've it's been in the polling the entire time. The polling was accurate, yeah. uh, not, not to mention just the fact that, you know, they spent at least four years saying, January 6th is the most important thing that ever happened, right? And that the election couldn't have, have actually gone any other way. And anyone who believes otherwise and trying to shame anybody who said that it was a fraudulent election or whatever. And they're still surprised that people are like well, not I mean, buying their narrative. Yeah. They, they got to act that way because, you know, Trump's half of it or a lot of his appeal is that he points to, to the media during his speeches and he's like, they're very bad people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like the and lying the people, media. The people lead it up. I know. And I think that that's exactly the point here is that I think how much of this do you think is the media trying to rationalize away the fact that he is just pointing the finger at them and that they are, you know, like his whole campaign, the movement around him is a rebuke of them. They are right. the rich men north of Richmond. It's well, like the whole thing, you know, one. Yeah. Well, they're in the culture where everyone around them doesn't like Trump. So it's, it's hard for them to go out to one of these States and be like, man, there's a lot of people that like Trump here. That's crazy. That's right? weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, maybe if you stopped calling it flyover country and actually like went and investigated <laughs> what America thinks, you might have some insight that's actually right. valuable. That was a nothing burger clip. I couldn't even believe we wasted three minutes watching that. It's just like, <laughs> tell me something. But Give that's, me information. But that's what all of it was. That's it was like people trying to grapple with it, not having anything of profound, like nothing profound to say, or just straight up attacking Iowans. Way far. That's what, that's what I saw. That, out that. Oh, that yeah, commentary that was, was was the oh, verbal equivalent of a there, soup sandwich. Right? It was just like it is it's all the, it's also the, obvious things, right? Like, oh, you know, Republicans like Trump. Can you believe that? Like, it's like, <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> yeah, scintillating yeah, insight yeah. there. You mentioned attacking Iowans. Did you see the Joy Reid clip where yeah, she's like, "That's what I meant." Yeah, I mean, yeah, oh MSNBC. Yeah, that's right. I, I, everyone reacted. That's why I didn't put yeah. it into our notes. But man, it was it was just everywhere. Yep. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. So uh, do you want to, want to talk about what the Democrats are doing? Or want to talk about Nikki Haley claiming that she, 
she won. Because this, this is the, this is, Nikki Haley. This is the best Haley. part, right? Oh, so yeah. let's let's react to her victory speech uh, after. So you listen to the victory speech and tell me who got second place and who got third place. I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. And and, and which two people? <laughs> are those <laughs> that's it tonight that, that's it that's tonight, the tweet i will be back in the great state of new hampshire and the question before americans is now very clear do you want more of the same aka her <laughs> or do you want a new generation of conservative Oh, AKA like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like new generation, Ramaswamy tsunami. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's like whoever wrote that speech was like completely not chaining together reality. Right? She got well, third. She place. got third place, <laughs> and then she's what she's really talking about is how she's actually leading in New Hampshire as she's talking in Iowa about the results of Iowa on election night. And you're just like, what is going on here? Like, what what world are you? Living it again. Here. I think this is just a complete and utter detachment from reality, like you said, because this is the donor class candidate, right? She yeah, yeah. she is courting the the moneyed political elite, the well connected. Meanwhile, on the other side, you've got what the people actually want, and and the divide here could not be more obvious to me. Like it, and it, I think it feels that way to anyone who's who's well, watching think, it at all I think closely. The notion that she's getting support from Democrats, the Democrats are actually registering as Republicans to vote for, her, and you know she's got backing from Reed Hoffman and and like actual major Democrat donors are the ones that are propping her up makes a lot of sense. You know they they would they would love for this to be a race between. Nikki Haley and, uh, you know, whoever is going to wind up being, if it's Biden or somebody else, um, you know, they would love for it to be that because then they win either way. Yeah, it's a win-win for them at that point. If the Democrats are suspending democracy in all these states and they're just propping up Biden, uh, there's a lot of money that doesn't have to be spent on Biden in the cycle. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that money can be filtered into someone like Nikki Haley, right? Dirty games. Yeah, it is kind of dirty. Well, and there is something interesting to be said too as well um, with New Hampshire is she's actually doing very well in New Hampshire. Like I think this point spread is only thirteen points between her and Trump in New Hampshire. If I thirty percent, only thirteen percent. Well, she's well. That's but that's that's a lot closer spread than Iowa was. Right? Sure, sure. That, and especially given well, so New Hampshire is a very different state. A couple reasons: it's less religious, less white, less many things from from Iowa. Coastal, right? uh, yeah, more more urban. Yeah, uh, it has. Uh, open primaries, right? So you do have a phenomenon of Democrats and independents who will vote in the Republican primary for Haley, uh, right? Because all the controversies in the Republicans, that's typical of open primaries, but they have a little bit different system than ours. There's a little bit more clothes in ours. Ours are actually more open. Um, Their governor is, is supporting her. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they also and have that. It's also and she like, spent most of her resources in, I, in uh, New Hampshire, and DeSantis spent most of his resources in Iowa. Which, whew, poor ROI on that investment. Just, yeah. $200 million yeah. evaporated. Yeah. yeah, like, Vivek definitely got a better ROI, and yeah. and he is somewhere within the Trump campaign now. So it's yeah. like, it's very useful. Um, $200 million, whew, that's rough. Yikes. Uh, uh, yeah, I think Rick, New Hampshire also is the home of the Free State Project. So like yep. a lot of, you know, people who, who might be, I don't know, on the right of center or libertarian spectrum are you know, very much into libertarian politics mm-hmm. in that state. I mean, 
I've only been there once in, in recent years, but the, the, there is a, a lot of, of liberty-minded people there. Um, How much do you think Rand Paul's Never Nikki campaign is going to have an impact on her uh, likability within the the party in general? I like it. I mean, I, I think it was uh, it was a good move by Rand. You know, the way the way that he did it to kind of like tease us first and then you know drop it the next day. There's been some really funny memes popping up um, over it. I don't know that it's gonna gonna change somebody, especially if it's somebody who's a a Democrat who's going to vote in a Republican primary, they're not going to be influenced by Rand Paul. Well, and Rand Paul fans and supporters are probably already in that camp, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, there was a tweet and I had commented on this from uh, Dave Smith, where he was saying that I think Vivek Ramaswamy, Rand Paul and Tucker Carlson have it right. The most important priority now right now is destroying Nikki Haley. She cannot get the nomination. She is pure evil and represents everything wrong with our political system. If we can't agree on anything else, let's agree that she must be defeated. And I had commented on there, uh, agreed anyone battling over purity tests right now is not a serious person. Um, Almost a million views. Set three yeah. quarters of a million. Wow. I mean, I, I got 18,000 yeah. 18, nice. on just the comment on the comment alone right there. Yeah, and that's that's um, an interesting coalition moment. I mean, Rand Paul launched his anti Haley, um, you know, effort mm-hmm. right right before the Iowa caucus, which, which he got nevernicky.com. And you can go on there and you can fill out a little thing and get on a newsletter. They'll try to fundraise from you. Um, but yeah, it's no small thing. Um, Rand Paul's effort to do that um, kind of symbolizes, I think a lot of the most COVID skeptic, most libertarian Republican group like coalescing uh, against Nikki. Well, and to me, this is a fight over the future of the culture of the party, yeah. which is much more important than even just this election alone. Like we're talking the next several decades of the ideas coming, the ideas that are coming through the vessel that is the Republican party. And if this idea that we're all kind we're very much a part of this ethos of this culture, um, it spreads into the Republican party. And that is the main thing. And you have guys like this, who I think we generally agree on a lot of things with Vivek Ramaswamy, Rand Paul, Tucker Carlson, Dave Smith. If those are the ideas being spread throughout the GOP over the next several decades, we're in a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. just in when it comes to our ideas, right? Yeah. Well, it's like and, Ron and Nikki, finally yeah, represents basically a, you know, a return to the old, like George Bush, neocon Republican days. And, yeah, we're, we're just we're purging out those types yeah, right now, right? If that's what she means. Go. Like that's that's go. the question. It's like, what is she, right? So you do have the corporate press doing some apologies for, her, right? Um, and then you have like well, I actually have I a, do have the Joy Reid clip. Oh, if we, we want for, to, like yeah, the, the we did put that press. in there. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's see it. This this is them explaining why Nikki lost in Iowa, New Hampshire. And I think to the point there. that you made, Steph. I mean, it, it's the elephant in the room. She's still a brown lady that's got to try to win in a party that is deeply anti-immigrant and which accepts the notion that you can say immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. She's getting, you know, birthered by Donald Trump. Um, and I don't care how much the donor class likes her, which will ramp up a lot, the better she does in New yes. Hampshire. So it's still a challenge. I don't see how she becomes the nominee of that party with Donald Trump still around. I can't picture it happening. Maybe it could happen. Ron DeSantis's only argument for staying in it is he's the white guy that he can still make the appeal to white people. While we have no- 
Dude, the race card is just, uh, it's just so tired. It's just like, come on, really? It's the only thing she's got. It's Although like, I do like love that she makes that comment while wearing Donald Trump's haircut. <laughs> yeah. it's very nice of her. Also, calling Nikki Haley a brown woman is a little bit of a stretch. I understand she's Indian, of Indian descent. I'll, 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 be, I'll be honest. I had a moment, I think earlier this year, where I had completely forgot she was Indian. And somebody was telling me, like, her first name's Nimrata. Like, her family is Indian, from India. Yeah. And I was just like, for years, I thought she was a white woman. I mean, I just, I, I never even recognized <laughs> you it. You see her on the street, you would never think twice yeah. about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Like Vivek, Indian dude. You can tell, right? 100%. But like her, I'm just like, oh yeah, she is white. Oh. And or she's not white. To, yeah. to the point though, it doesn't fucking matter at all. She is so unlikable for all the other reasons. There's nothing about the color of her skin or her heritage that has anything to do with the fact that, right. she, that she would be a bad president. Uh, additionally, if she was if she was saying everything that Ramaswamy was saying, these people would not be saying this about the people of Iowa. Yeah, right. yes. they would be completely different oriented. Yes. Now let me try to convince you guys. Otherwise, uh, I do have a I have a link on a pretty good rant she did on TV. Uh, I want to try to get you guys to push you guys on like the Nikki Haley is everything that's evil, and let's just take a look at it. It's, it's, it's only about a minute. Uh, video. Uh, it's just to the right there of. Uh, oh, this. Hold it for okay. you, buddy. Yeah. It's not in our to be clear, show flow. I don't think yeah. she is everything that's evil, but, <laughs> no. but I think she represents <laughs> yeah. a a wind a political windsock. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. She's just manipulable. She can say whatever. Totally agree. And this this is her trying to actually appeal to conservatives. Yeah. But I will say that you've got 70% of Americans don't want to see a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans disapprove of both Trump and Biden. If you look at the fact that both Trump and Biden put us trillions of dollars in debt that our kids are never going to forgive them for. And you look at the fact that they are still focused on the past, whether it's investigations, whether it's grievances. We need a new generational conservative leader. That's what Americans want. That's what they're yearning for. They don't want to continue to deal with all the negativity and baggage of the past they want to start seeing solutions so that we get things done on the economy on education on the border once and for all on law and order and on making sure that we prevent war that's the biggest focus we have that's what granite staters are talking about and that's what we're going to continue i think she's touching on something good like right there right there is like a sense of like where everything's looking backwards especially in the trump versus biden phenomena where it's like all about was 2016 a, a stolen election or was 2020 uh, what was the right thing to do in COVID? Like who owns the unemployment during COVID or the inflation now? And all these different things are all backwards looking. And so she's touching, I think whoever's recommending that particular message is doing a good job because I think that is an underlying spirit of our times. I think and one of the reasons why Ramaswamy had the energy he did. It's just that people don't want, like his supporters don't want this energy, which is, you know, the we're not going to get war because we're going to bomb everybody first. I don't know what her yeah, whole foreign I think policy point is. That I she think it's to incredibly it disingenuous to try to say, oh, yeah, Trump's campaign is backward looking when basically her primary talking points are straight out of 2004. <laughs> it's like, what? You mean on foreign policy? Is that what you mean? Yes, particularly. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. There, it's, 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 especially because we're sensitive to the foreign policy. Like the average American is not tuned into that at all. Right. Fair. And they didn't support Ramaswamy because he had a, the best policy on israel right they support ramaswamy because he was charming and on the internet right well but he he was markedly better on foreign policy than other things and that that may not have been anybody you know most people's primary issue yeah but it was certainly a differentiator well and the the culture of the gop shifting in that direction like he he's capturing the directional shift that seems to be happening within a 
large faction of the GOP, mm-hmm. not the entire GOP. Like there's still a bunch of neocons that exist within there right. and they're going to be dying out with the old generations. Right. But the future of the party is much more Ramaswamy ish than it is Nikki Haley at this point. I think it's going to be like the moral majority, right? There was a period in time where if you wanted to be a Republican candidate, you had to appeal to the moral majority. Yeah. Use those words at some point in your campaign. Now it's going to be America first. Is your social security policy America first? Is your trade policy America first? Like everything these things going to go through American first lens. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, so and that for lens good is going Ill. to shift yep. in, depending on who kind of is able to control it. And, it and that's why the Ramaswamy tsunami is so important because it shifts that very important lens, which is becoming quickly becoming, or if it, it probably is the moral majority within the party right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of that, so the, in the last part of this with Nikki is that she took that narrative where she kind of obviously says like, this is a two person race now because of New Hampshire. And she said she refused to participate in any further debates. Well, Trump has said he's not going to do any debates either. So it was pretty much left in DeSantis. The only guy who wants to do well, and, and DeSantis <laughs> offered to debate two empty chairs. Yeah. And, then, and, and, then, and then ABC is like, now nah, we're canceling it. <laughs> Whatever like the opposite of having it is like DeSantis. That's, that's DeSantis. Yeah. DeSantis debating two empty chairs. Yeah. <laughs> or just like the, the general well, charisma and being able to like, control these types of these the narratives around these events like he's just like i'll debate two empty chairs and share my platform and they're like eh, that's, eh. even abc is just like i'm not sure about the ratings on that one but <laughs> to be so fair weird. he did probably win the last debate like he like when we covered it like we said he was his strongest showing yeah it right? was yeah I, so. I it's weird to me that in a nation that is so that pays so much lip service to democracy that that refusing to debate is a power play like where is the continuity in that well democracy is a myth <laughs> well obviously right. it's a shibboleth it's a shibboleth, yeah, it's, a shibboleth. It's, it's just yeah. something that we all we all kind of bow down and being like yes for the good of democracy and then we go on with our days and, oh, it, and it, keeps, it keeps the evil bo- uh, the greater good it's like the it's the it's the children's story that you tell your kids to keep the boogie man away at night like that's what democracy is for the public at large but now that shibboleth is breaking down. Do so. the debates really mean what they used to mean? Are they really the force that's pushing and pulling people from one camp into another camp anymore? I mean, you look at the, even the way we talk about it, we tend to talk about it like it's performance art, yeah. not as like a persuasion art. Right? True. So persuasion art is we are all advocating in good faith to try to use reason to come to a consensus conclusion about the right direction of the country. Uh, if you look at like the debates between George Bush and uh, Al Gore in 2000, they have a very different feel than the ones now where they right. become less policy. Fo- they have saw policy in either one, but they're less like persuasion art and more performance art where now it's like, how, well, how good a dunk did you get? Right. And like, did you advance your talking points and uh, do your talking points rhyme? You know, like things like that, that, that would, that matter more now than they did in the past, although they always mattered. Well, hmm. it's it's a battle again for the culture of the party. Like when the internet says Vivek Ramaswamy has basically won all of the debates, that's that showcases where the party is. It's not necessarily about like did you convince people on the policy issues. It mm-hmm. showcases where the energy is, and and that's really I think it's a signal. And that's what the debates are for. It's not necessarily like, oh, are we going to have 30% taxes or 27% taxes? It's much more about where the energy is going. And, yeah. and, and it shows the larger scale signal to right. people. And it, does, and it does get the middle, right? There, there are a set of po- population that is persuaded by debate. I mean, geez, you know, Ron Paul came up 
using debates, right? True. So yeah. that's that is it is a platform and it does matter. So yeah. uh, speaking of democracy, uh, the Democrats aren't going to have any. Uh, ironically, uh, they're not going <laughs> to. We did talk about all the Republican stuff. Uh, the the Democrats have been much said, and this is something that most state codes have uh, as far as for their party can if they want to kind of short circuit the primary process and just all vote as a leadership team to say, this is our candidate uh, without having an official vote. Uh, a couple, a bunch of states have done that for the Democrats, Florida, stuff like that, but they still sent out Kamala Harris uh, to talk to a bunch of uh, areas and campaign states. Um, Biden was also out uh, doing some interviews and we're not really doing interviews, but just doing some speaking engagements. You can find him Roomba-ing around various <laughs> different rooms in, uh, <laughs> in New Hampshire and, South Carolina. Uh, but here's uh, Kamala Harris trying to run cover for the Biden administration to ABC. Ask the vice president about their campaign strategy. Do you think Donald Trump at this point is a foregone conclusion? I don't know. But look, if it is Donald Trump, we've beat him before and we'll beat him again. Uh, when you again look at all of the issues that are at stake, including our standing in the world, I think that the people of America um, want more in terms of um, the outcome of this election and, and, and charting the, the course for the future of our country. You've been confident, your campaign has been confident. Some are concerned you all may be a little too confident. Why not go out and attack no. Donald Trump? Go after his legal challenges. Oh, yeah, they don't do that enough. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you something. I am of the school that you either run without an opponent or you run scared. <laughs> I have learned that to be a fact, and that is the way that I feel about any election. So absolutely not. You can't take anything for granted. And we have a duty and responsibility to earn this reelect. And that's why I'm out here in South Carolina. It's a state where the black. Everything is just like a cliche. There's no substance that like, you know what I mean? Like there's something about that. This doesn't feel real. One of my favorite, one of my favorite lines from Trump is, uh, uh, I remember him being asked, like, what do you think about the VP Kamala Harris? I was like, I don't know what I think about her. She just like speaks in rhyme. It <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. wasn't <laughs> that in his interview with Tucker. It might, it might have been. been. Yeah. I, I just, I always remember that. And every time I, I see her, it's just like, wow. She's like Dr. Seussing it kind of with am, like awkward poetry. Like, it's like I am it's always so weird. impressed by her ability to, to speak so many words and say so little. Well, you see AI is a clever thing. <laughs> AI is kind of a fancy, fancy thing. thing. First Fancy. off, it's two letters. It's two, it's letters. two letters. Exactly. So well, that's that's the uh, the incredible moment is that the Biden administration just doesn't have anything to go on, right? They have the Middle East is blowing up. They have terror, like their their response to Israel and the, what they've been doing with Israel has been undermining their own like fundamental demographics. Uh, you know, there's the ABC poll or ABC News poll that put them at only 12 percent of the population thinks that he's like cognitively there enough to run the country. 69% say he's not, and the rest are undecided. I mean, like, they have a lot of problems. They're down in, like I said earlier, down in Georgia. It is not looking good for the Biden presidency unless something major shifts. So, For sure. And I'd actually, if if it's all right, I'd like to dive into this right in Joe Biden thing that popped up in New Hampshire. Oh, yeah, right. Because this is so weird. It's such a crazy story. It's so weird. So I I came across this uh, sort of a, a tweet from excuse me, from Bruce Fenton on, on, on X here. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wild thing. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read a little bit of this and we can pull it up on screen as well. So the first in the nation primary has been held in New Hampshire for over 110 years. Every single president candidate and incumbent comes here and works the streets and diners and small town halls, FDR, Truman, Calvin Coolidge, John F. 
Ted and Bobby Kennedy, Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, Obama, freaking everybody, right? Uh, they all come. Now, this time, it's obviously very different than all, uh, all of history because Joe Biden is not only completely incapable of campaigning, he's so far mentally gone that they can't even put up a reasonable charade. Every New Hampshire voter has done this their entire life. The average Dem primary voter of voters are 70 years old, and many of them have voted in primaries since McGovern. Wow. Despite their loyalty to Team Blue, they aren't going to flush their nation down the toilet when they see up close what we all know, that Joe Biden is simply not capable of shaking hands, answering questions, working rooms, and speaking in arenas the way every other candidate has been. And he's not capable of leading our nation and is not doing so now as we speak. Uh, anyways, he goes on to say, tragically, the National Democrats decided to sacrifice this amazing, well-polished, century-old tradition in favor of rigging the odds for Biden. But how do you get your own party to change the rules? These are New Hampshire Democrats, keep in mind, their own party. It's not the enemy who votes in the Dem primary. How can they disenfranchise their fellow Dems? You guessed it, racism. The grift that keeps on giving. Oh, gift, not grift. Although, same <laughs> Freudian slip, and I think that it works. <laughs> Yes, the Dems actually said that New Hampshire had the wrong skin color, too many white people, and that South Carolina, where Biden did very well, is more diverse. Biden's handlers wrote a letter talking about people of color, quote unquote, as the reason for attempting to move the primary from a state he's expected to do poorly in. But then along came Robert F. Kennedy, and it looked like Biden might have a real primary. The Biden machine was afraid of RFK Jr., who could have run circles around Biden in New Hampshire. So they made it so RFK Jr. wasn't even able to set foot in New Hampshire and still be on the Dem ticket. So, of course, Kennedy left the, uh, the party and went independent. Biden's handlers, to virtue signal anger at New Hampshire people being too white, removed Biden from the primary ballot. Then New Hampshire Dems fought back and decided to hold the primary anyway. First in the nation is a part of the law in New Hampshire and has full bipartisan support. So the DNC, the Democratic uh, National Committee, said that those delegates won't count at the national convention. The Dems plan to have 49 states instead of 50 represented at their convention. They've learned their lesson from 2016 when those pesky Democrat voters tried to interfere by voting for Bernie over the pre-selected Hillary. And Bernie might have actually beat Trump, by the way. The National Dems pressured the state Dems to ignore the primary and called it quote-unquote meaningless in some official communications. Whoops, turns out that it's a crime for a political party to say an election is meaningless. So they ended up getting a letter from the Attorney General of New Hampshire. And now a couple of other Dems are vying for those votes and Biden's handlers and the National Democrat machine are afraid of yet another embarrassment. So they're asking for people to write in Biden's name on this ballot. There will be 21 Democrats on the ballot in New Hampshire on Tuesday, and none of which are Joe Biden. So they're asking people to write in Joe Biden, the sitting president of the United States for the New Hampshire primary because they whoopsie daisied and tried to virtue signal, pulled him off, and now they need him back on for legal reasons. Well, and then and the iconography of, of this particular, you know, write in uh, campaign is of course the the Roman salute the <laughs> yeah the the communist fist I mean yeah so it, wild yeah, and it's it's there so yeah it's it's what Henri's saying and it says New Hampshire stop Donald Trump and then on the wrist of one of the fists right rising up it's on January thirteenth um, right in Joe Biden everything is on the line like everything is online to write in this current sitting president like yeah. it's, it's such a weird. New Hampshire Attorney General suggests national Dems broke law by calling primary meaningless. 
um, bunch of legal stuff. Non-white Democrats upset as Dean Phillips expected to launch challenge to Biden in New Hampshire. So Whoa, it's like weird framing. situation. Yeah. So so they're trying so hard to not expose the fact that Joe Biden is literally incapable of campaigning that they just like worked themselves into this total quagmire where now actually we have to do this whole writing. Like I just it's it's ridiculous how dysfunctional this is all in an effort to rig their own primary. It's ridiculous. Which is which is which is so ironic. Yeah, ironic and then not surprising if you've been following the Democrat Party over a, a longer period of time. Yeah. When you think of what they did to Bernie Sanders, the fact that they have super delegates and these these crazy systems that are like as someone who's been through a very thorough Republican primary system is much it seems to me to be much more open, much more on the up and up, much more transparent even though they're shenanigans. Those shenanigans are like the things that you can understand, you know, are just like part of the game as opposed to some people just have extra votes or <laughs> well, obviously you know, some, in a some presidential primary more equal, right? with one of the most unpopular presidents of all time that there are states whose leadership teams are, are so unworried about what their what their supporters think that they're able to just say, we're not going to have a primary now. Well, and remember in 2016 what happened with uh WikiLeaks dumping Hillary Clinton's emails and you start to see the uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the chairwoman of the party at the time, uh, coordinating with the Hillary Clinton campaign to change up rules. This is the reason why Tulsi Gabbard originally left the party because she was like the vice chair at the time. And this is also when Seth Rich got killed, uh, mugged. Uh, outside of the DNC yeah. uh, and WikiLeaks kind of giving the nod that he was their inside man that gave a bunch of information out to them. But you just remember that all happened back in 2016. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Hillary Clinton, uh, the WEF met this week. No, just well, was, was she there? Weird, uh, <laughs> weird transition. Well, I, like I, it, I, I like think it. as we move into the World Economic Forum, because this is one of my favorite weeks because a lot of crazy stuff comes out of this. Um, we got some funny let, let's start with let's start with this one right here it's just we, i think everyone should should know um from mario nafal on twitter <laughs> um the sex workers have been fully booked at davos this week um this year's wef meeting at davos appears to be heading in the usual direction of drug-fueled uh bung bunga sex parties local escort service website officially announced all local service providers are completely booked during the wef week um also the wef's 2024 theme is rebuilding trust <laughs> so, <laughs> wow uh, we're just like you wow um you can have faith in us yeah. these are these are the global elite everybody global right elite. and you know this stuff is illegal uh, but not when they do it. Right. So, yeah. But uh, um, I, I think if you haven't gotten a chance to attend a World Economic Forum event, um, this is kind of <laughs> what you're missing out right here. This? this is this what is you're crazy. missing out on. Uh, <laughs> Elon just wanted to just let you know, wow, I didn't know Elizabeth Warren was at Davos. <laughs> um <laughs> Alright, not to be disrespectful, but 
Omicron variant is a thing. <laughs> Dude, I know. Who was who, who tweeted like, this is like a I can't believe like we just got out of COVID and now they, they literally have someone coughing directly in their faces. <laughs> but you, you get the point. You get the point. And, and cool, cool ceremony, you know, yeah, like right, right on. Well, I, it's, 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 it was just, there's something weird going on in Davos, right? And it, it maintains the weirdness of it. The dress, sometimes the stuff like that. When they do music, which showed some of the music from previous years, there's, there's like a, they're trying to build culture, right? And they're trying to do so in like these virtue signaling ways that come off so strange to everyday people who are watching and be like, it's a bunch of white dudes and they, they're going to have this person get up there and do that. Like, there's something weird going on. They're trying to like shelter themselves with that, like prevent them from being criticized by that. I don't know what they're, what, what is the real goal here? Yeah, they're definitely trying to cloak themselves in the, the robe of um, diversity, mm. right? I think with, with a lot of this, this stuff or, or, I mean, and obviously like we only see a little clip of this. We don't know what the full context is. It could have, it could have been a really cool ceremonial thing. That no, that, that, was, that, was, it. that, that was, was pretty it. much it. That, that was, was it. That was the whole of it. <laughs> All right. Well, you I retract my argument. Yeah, That's right. weird as fuck. <laughs> you do that. And then the rest of the time, it's a bunch of rich elites talking about how, and I, and you know, you know me guys, I'm not the, I'm not the conspiracy theory guy. You're not. <laughs> We are. And it's a bunch of elites <laughs> just saying horrifying true, so. things. Like, check out, the, uh, first up, we got Ursula von der Leyen, the, press, the president of the EU Commission about EU censorship efforts online. Disinformation. By the way, her name is Ursula, uh, Ursula right? Yeah, Let it's me really go back Ursula. to the number one concern of the Global Risk Report. Disinformation and misinformation. Tackling this has been our focus since the very beginning of my mandate. With our Digital Services Act, we defined the responsibilities of large internet platforms on the content they promote and propagate. A responsible to children and vulnerable groups targeted by hate speech but also a responsibility to our societies as a whole. Because the boundary between online and offline is getting thinner and thinner. And the values we cherish offline should also be protected online. And this is even more important in this new era of generative AI. Now, the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report puts artificial intelligence as one of the top potential risks for the next decade. I mean, just more digital authoritarian stuff. I yeah, think. Right? right. Like the responsibility they have on what they promote, that what they're talking about is with the things that you make on there. Like, should they boost or not boost something should they allow it to spread or not allow it to spread that's what they're talking about what they're talking about is whether or not their government should be involved in telling companies what message they should send and i know they don't have freedom of press in the eu uh but as an american i would say that would be very concerning to me if i was an eu citizen quite particularly in an, in an age where we are finding that there are more international treaties being suggested and being put into effect that would end up superseding sovereignty of nations that sign on to those things, right? I mean, we could find ourselves very easily underneath some sort of UN initiative where 
technically by the virtue of that treaty we don't have the ability to uh you know to protect ourselves against some of those overreaches well it's it's more likely to happen if i understand it right from the guys that i know in the tech policy space it's more of a situation where you have a company that's trying to make it as simple as possible because you have all these jurisdictions you're an international company so what you try to do is you the most restrained policy is tend to be the policy that you implement globally because you, if you're safe there, you're safe everywhere, right? Sure. So that's tem- it, rather than it, there's a there's a disincentive, like a complexity disincentive, to have it be make sense for each individual jurisdiction. So what you tend to do is the most constrained one. Does mm. that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and so the uh, uh, so something before you move yeah. on to the next something that's just interesting is watching Elon signal boost pretty much all of these videos. Yeah, like just the general culture shift and the uh, knowledge share of all of this that is happening now. Because Davos has been around for decades, for and sure, they, and Since they've like been the doing 70s. the same stuff for a long time. But now regular people are seeing it, and like I was just seeing pe- people being like, "Is there a place that you can go and watch?" Davos. I was like, they have a YouTube channel. Dude, you can watch be, all of the speeches on YouTube. It'd be great to have it like the Olympics yeah. where you just like have a big screen somewhere and everyone like gets together for like WEF watch parties and stuff. <laughs> Turn it into some drinking games. You know, it'd be, it could be a good time. So it's mostly super boring. I, just, I, love, I love how these people are like, I'm really concerned about, you know, what people are doing online. Now let's go to that Bunga Bunga sex party. So there was a Klaus opened it up with his comments. Uh, we could watch. We can watch the man himself do it. And just he—he he just looks like a Batman supervillain, dude. He is. Right? It's partially He's the a accent. Character. It's absolutely the it's, accent. That's Germans, man. Hundred yeah. percent. I mean, his his father was part of the Nazi party, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it is what it is. But yeah, here's uh, here's uh, Mr. Klaus. So steeply transformative challenges which are actually the cornerstone of our program, lead to uncertainty, generalized fear, and pessimism. They force us into a mode of short-term crisis management at the detriment of long-term strategic and sustainable solutions. This reactionary approach undermines our collective faith in the future and here we losing the faith of our future we risk to become much more ego-centered and on a, nas- on a national and individual level to break this cycle We need a paradigm shift. We must rebuild trust, and that's actually the theme of our meeting. We have to rebuild trust. Trust in our future, trust in our capacity to overcome challenges, and most importantly, trust in each other. Oh my God. Reactionary movements go against the faith that's put in our collective future. That's what he said. <laughs> he sees collective future as what they're deciding at the WEF, right? Like the elites, the their vision for the world. And so he's he's literally attacking the criticisms of the WEF as that reactionary. 
Yeah, but he said he said the word faith in there like yeah. three different times in what they're doing. It's, the religious very element cultish, is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this begs I, the it begs the question: whose trust are they trying to regain, or trust in what exactly? Right. The because on one side, it's like you have, as you pointed out, Kyle, this newfound pu- like public awareness of the conversations that go on here because of platforms like X. And you have a completely eroded level of trust, if there ever was one, in the public of the competency and ability of these global leaders to actually do what the people want, what is best for the people. So are they trying to regain the trust of that population? Or are they trying to, uh, in, in a sort of a twisted sense, make themselves, make their policies that they want to put forward seem more trustworthy to that population that is very, very skeptical of them. It, it might be worth saying, we, we haven't really explained what the World Economic Forum is, because I think a lot of people have ideas around it. Like this is the place where people go drink baby's blood or whatever. This is more so the place where they recruit the people no, to drink baby's blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. this, this is more so the place where they recruit the people to drink the baby's blood. But yeah, but it, what the world economic forum is, is like a think tank where they put together a leadership summit, where they bring together all the best and brightest minds from around the world. And, and they act as like an influence mechanism on those people. So that they, they'll bring them all in and then they try to influence the ideas of people like Klaus, Schwab and try to get them embodied into a culture so that we're all in this together based off of the common goal that we're moving towards, which is this kind of like technocratic progressive society. Right. Um, it's probably just worth mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason that I, that I asked that or that I, that I kind of position it in that sort of dichotomy of like, what are they trying to rebuild trust in is because you have conversations like the, the, uh, uh, what was it? Liberate the science. Uh, yeah. Liberating talk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and right. then you have Javier Millet, also right. speaking. And right. so I'm wondering which message are they really trying to amplify? Well, obviously or is Millet just virtue signaling to the people that don't trust yeah, them to say, actually, we have people that you like uh, at our conference. You should just, you should believe in us. Well, there's been an increasing amount of, of vision eyes on the WF, right? So with an additional amount of scrutiny, there's been more transparency from them, right? So in the past, these were largely secretive meetings and they've become more and more open over time in order to let people in on what's going on because there's a lot of conspiracy theories around it. So I, I can see them as they're trying to let the air out so that they're not, you know, encouraging bad things to Missing happen. People not to know what they're actually doing. Sure. Well, then I, we I actually saw the what way, they're doing yeah. and it became very concerning, right? Yes. And so then last year, I know uh, like last summer, we talked a bunch about the WF and their meeting at that point, right? When we talked about that, it was like, you know, we're going to eat the bugs and live in pods and all these kind of things is kind of what they said, but not exactly what they said. And there's like, there's manipulations that are happening on the internet, but then there's also like, they would say things and then, you know, it would come true. Like they would be preparing for a pandemic and then a pandemic happened and everyone responded with trust the science in this very specific mode. And it, to me, it's mostly about the ideas that they're advancing, Right a very specific vision of what, what Kyle said, technocracy, where you have elites and professionals, um, um, experts in charge who are going to make decisions and lead us into the better, brighter future. Um, so the in the previous years, yeah, they had things like uh, when you Google and what will happen, right? Those were the kind of discussions in 2022 when it comes to trust in the science. And we actually have this throwback video too. Yeah, to this is... Uh, this is- from the United Nations saying that we own the science. And this is an older video from the World Economic Forum. Last year, or 2022. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, 
you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. So this is like, what is your model for science? What's your philosophy of the idea of what science should be? Right, and it's a it's a conflict of visions, right? In the soul sense, there's the 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 vision of science as we're going to do a one way, and then there's like the classical way. And I think a lot of people think when they hear them say science, they're thinking the classical model of science, which is a spontaneously ordered process where we all compete over the data and the interpretation of the data to better understand the world. Right, so they'll use that sometimes, and then they'll actually play a very subtle game to switch out what they actually mean into the technocratic definition, which was introduced during the progressive era that said that we know what to do. We have the, we have the science now of how to plant society, so therefore we need a, you know, uh, uh, a fourth branch of government that's going to really manage things, and that's how we created the bureaucracy. It's as if they're using the, using science as a Trojan horse of sorts to just like you know yeah. shuttle in their prescription and and science has become a part of like the noble lie like we need to just you know use this research to get the data that we need to show the public that what we're doing is the right thing to do instead of being informed by the results of an honest interpretation of a an honest study right so, so they had this thing uh, like a liberating science was their form that they did and they had on a, a, a science historian from harvard and, uh, of course, they got into all kinds of discussions about, you know, X, for example. Do you want to do that one first, Kyle? Yeah, again, yeah. once again, Elon is signal boosting this tweet, right? <laughs> well, did you see but, the, other, the other tweet? He said, we considered G, F, and Y. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they, they're, they're talking about how scary X is as a place because there's all this open dialogue that Elon's mm -hmm. allowing. For a long time, I was on Twitter. Um, and now it's become such a toxic place that I've concluded it's not a worthwhile place to spend time. And as you've said, it is exhausting. So you do have to pick and choose. And you have to think about where the places where you can get your message across. But I am trying to figure out, I mean, I have given up on X, what a scary name that even is, right? <laughs> um, and I don't know what the alternative is right now. So the question of the social media, I must say that I have abandoned Twitter too. Uh, so X, because yeah, it's very toxic environment. And we talk about, I have no solution on that, but I think one day it will come the moment of the um, code of conduct mm -hmm. in these places. Because journals, journalists, if you spread crazy news and insults and if you if a journalist says racist things it can it can be amended exactly. why on so why social medias that they have such big power we still can because it's new but i think we, there will be a societal reflection on how information is brought mm -hmm. there of course on x now there is also the the policy of the, the of the owner that is problematic but i think this is a problem of uh, of the society of the future the deontology in social media so a, a big part of this is 
they're 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 literally saying this after they said we need scientists to be better messengers to communicate the truths that we discover in science to the public and then they go into and did you know that there are people on x that are totally toxic what do they mean by toxic people who say things that aren't true what do they mean by true is their conclusions right they 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 are smuggling in their premises under science and they're using as a cloak to keep them from being criticized uh, rather than doing that. I mean, and there's a great one I, I released this week to demonstrate this, like to demonstrate this straight up. And the reason why that it's such a great contradiction, right? Cause they're using a, a, a word science, the scientific method as what it was supposed to be was a series, an open process where everyone is going to lay their cards out and show their work. And then anytime you do that in an open system, like on X, they don't like that. They don't want to do that. In fact, they have to go to a forum to get their ideas across like this because they couldn't possibly stand that up on X. Naomi? Yeah, I'd like to just go back yeah. from in here. And this is a, a both a yes and comment. So, yes, I completely agree. And I think everything you've said about science is really true and that we have a lot more work to do to explain how science operates and to explain that disagreement among science, as you put it earlier, it's not chaos. That's the process of how we find out the truth about the natural world. Classic model. The end part of this, though, is to come back to what Carlos said about agriculture. And this is, I think, really important to understand. And it's a little depressing, but I think if we don't understand it, we can't fix it. So in the case of agriculture, so we know, as you said, agriculture, particularly animal agriculture, is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions, a major driver of climate change. So one thing people can do to help in this case is to eat less meat. So what are we seeing happening in the United States? The agriculture industry is spreading disinformation. But here's where it gets particularly tricky. Not about climate change. They're spreading disinformation about the public health benefits of a plant-forward diet. So one of the great Beta. things about eating less red meat, and you don't have to eliminate it altogether, but just <laughs> eating less, good for the planet, and it's good for your body. See, so exactly. this is so a win-win solution. In and it's all of her premises, after she just said all this stuff about science and all the things that, that, that people would generally understand. So think about COVID for a minute. Think about that minute when there was data released and then people said, well, wait, this data doesn't suggest that the death rate's very high, as high as we might have thought, and so we should open the economy. And then there was a trending thing of the science says that we need to shut down the economy anyways, and we need to keep shutting down and keep things after the two weeks or whatever, because any amounts of death means you just don't love your grandma. Mm-hmm. Right? Or it, someone else's grandma. Yeah. I mean, it was that, it, that, that is the scam, right? Yeah. So the, st- the steps, the four-step process. I wrote this down when I was listening to this BS and then I tweeted it. One, be a scientist. Two, claim true data can, that can be verified, right? You can say the earth is warming, whatever. Three, smuggle in your preferred political solution that can't be tested or shouldn't be tested because you've just talked about objective data, such as we need to go on a, you know, eliminate red meat from the diet. And then four, what she gets into here is that she eventually criticizes anyone who disagrees, complicates or challenges your political solution as anti-science or in this case as like toxic or whatever. And that's, and that's, and everyone knows that this is the game and they, yet they continue to do this performance theater of they're like, Oh, we're so we're just up here just like trying to talk about solutions and all that kind of stuff while having a complete monoculture up there. 
that doesn't represent anybody, right? That just represents the glo- like these weird elitist people. Well, and the trust the science is just the mantra that they use for the cultish religion, right? It's just like it's like it's like doing the beads on the on the rosary, just like trust the science, trust the science, <laughs> trust the science, and you just go through it, and it's like, right. and, and you're just like, and, and then you and then you end it for the greater good, <laughs> and then you move good. on, and then off to the sex parties. Yes, <laughs> naturally, for the greater good. For the greater um, good. I, I I think that's a really interesting like framework you've designed there, David. And I actually, but the one thing I want to push back on is, is number two: claim true data that can be validated. I think there's distortions in what she just said there. I think there is a tremendous amount of inflation of the impact that animal agriculture has on the greater phenomenon of climate change or global warming, regardless of what you think about, you know, the greater concept or phenomena therein. Um, and I, I mean, obviously I think we'll, we'll get into that in sure. some, some future episodes, but right. um, th- there's a ton of, inflation or they're like magnifying certain things and ignoring whole other things like right. the nation of China, for example, right. has an the impact on Ukraine. How about that? Yeah. You know, it's like, like or never ending war in cow farts. Right. For I sure. Mean, We're going to focus on that. We're going to ignore the fact farts. that China burns more coal than like the rest of the world combined. Right. Right. Like, right. There's a, there's a smuggling and there's manipulation used in statistics. There's all those kind of things, right? Yes. We could all point to those and those are well known. And the thing is they're not going to increase trust. If they simultaneously say we need to increase trust, but we've got to make sure people don't believe the wrong things by using government to prevent social media companies from doing things. And then additionally that we're going to uh, we're going to shame people for disagreeing with us about the conclusions of their diets. Yeah. Rather than saying, hey, here's the data and, and trying to have an actual open dialogue. Right. This is an elite group of people who are using government, using lobbying arms, using using shame in this case. This lady wrote a book. Very specifically, that says that the history of science, those skeptical Clement times, was only motivated by the fossil fuel industry, and it couldn't possibly be motivated by anything else. Right? That's her. That's her whole premise. Her entire career is built around that. And they feature her on our stage. They say, "Take us seriously. We're really interested in opening up and building trust." Right. It's it's, it's completely absurd. Well, and, and part of her message too, like something that was that was in that speech was her talking about the promotion of the idea of meat being healthy. It doesn't matter if that's true or not. Even if it is true, the promotion of that idea brings dis- disinformation about climate change. So we gotta so we gotta downplay the promotion of of eating meat because of it. Right. right. Like it doesn't matter if meat's healthy for you. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, it and brings skepticism to climate change. They're always telling us, you know, to don't eat meat. Eat the bugs. Eat the bugs. bugs. Why don't you eat these nuts? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So. And of course, we had two other famous individuals that we love on the show. Millet came and he gave an awesome speech. Yes. A uh, banger. Dude. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution 
to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us Argentines to testify to these two points. I love it. Dude, so cool. One of the things I think is interesting about that is just how unified that moment was uh, for people across like the different factions on the right, both Republicans, Libertarians, factions inside the Libertarian movement that were all like, yeah, well, you know, you that moment. Elon tweeting it out. I mean, getting millions of views. Yeah. It's it's an iconic moment, in my opinion. I mean, it's, it's really like a, a, a privilege that for us in the Liberty movement, like we're here for this. Yeah, this is this is what we're here for although i am seeing a certain segment of people on twitter that are just convinced he's like a cia plant because dude, because we can, can't because we just can't have any victories ever yeah like dude, like there's just the no. skepticism that no. exists right i mean i i agree with you but i'm i'm seeing annoyed it all over by the that place. i'm so annoyed by that like dude because even if he is like i had a bunch of people great. tweeting I that mean, at me like i i posted a clip of this and i had people in the comments saying it was like well obviously he was invited because he's like in bed with them and he's like oh jeez <laughs> like i think I think everyone listening to this show should watch and listen to this speech in its entirety for themselves, find a quiet place and really just absorb it. Because I think if you, if you value individual Liberty, if you understand the typical context that we've just gone through very thoroughly of what the WEF typically is, and then you juxtapose that with what, Javier Malay was allowed to say to that audience on that stage within the context of the moment that we're in as a society, as a, a, a you know, a species on this planet, absolutely a historic moment for, for me. I mean, like I, I consider it like one of the most pivotal like speeches and political moments in my lifetime, frankly, like really just impactful the audience that he was able to say this to at this moment i just i i don't think it can be understated personally i understand the criticisms of it and how this is a lot of talk right we'll have to see what javier Millet's actions are he's already doing over time that, right right and and but but who knows right one thing that i look at this critically uh for is that I don't like how it sort of is a backdoor way of legitimizing the activities of the WF because they've invited a guy that, that I agree with to say something that I agree with it. I don't, I don't want people to see this and think, Oh, the WEF is, is actually really fair and balanced. And like, they have some, they have some good ideas too, right? Like really I mean, I think what can, they're doing is tip of the hat to the WEF for actually doing this. Cause it's, I think, you had a good post, you know, you were sharing Klaus's uh, comments about how libertarianism is, is kind of the anti, you know, the, the anti-system, the anti-system, the enemy. Oh, yeah. So I, it's, I, it's, I a post that <laughs> it's a surprise that, that they were they allowed him to do this. But why then is it, the skeptic in me is like, why would they allow yeah. this? Because he's a new global leader. Yeah. Like that's their their supposed mission is not supposed to be ideological. It's supposed to be about bringing people together to discuss ideas and that sort of thing. And so, to kind of convert them under their wing. So like they, they put out, cause remember, remember in the early days of Vivek's campaign, he got hit for being considered this young global leader by the WEF. They do that to everybody. Like Ivanka Trump was on there. Tulsi Gabbard was on there and they, they just put out a wide net and try to be like, Hey, come to our conference and also pay a bunch of, in order to be a member, you have to pay 10 grand a year kind of a thing like it's a whole thing like that's how klaus expands the net so they just try to grab it. putin was on that list right, right? and then they 
and when the Ukraine war started, they quietly removed him from the list. Okay, so um, then let me let me let me frame this in the form of a question. Do you think Javier Millet is going to have more of an impact on the WEF or the WEF on Javier Millet? Depends. Uh, Does he accept the neither. prostitutes or not? I mean, yeah. well, I think they probably invited him there because yeah, he's a he's a sex guru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably not. They invited him there because they needed him to teach them his ways. That's really right? one of those. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's very Latin American. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever do you mean? <laughs> well, th th that's the thing is the Javier. He's he's done all the homework. He's he's read all the books. Yeah. He knows what he's 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 Not his true. identity is within kind of the ANCAP Rothbardian school of thought when it comes to Austrian economics. Him going to the WF is is not going to be like Klaus is just like you're one of us now. Like no, that's not that it, that's not going to happen. Like he's he's old and he's he's in his ways about things. Right? He's not going to just all of a sudden be like I'm a Keynesian now. Right. <laughs> he's not yeah. going to do that. If he, he is, is who we think uh, he is, then he's uncorruptible. Yeah. yeah. Additionally, to he that, might go to the bunga bunga party. Yeah. <laughs> he went there. He just he's just got to see it. <laughs> his core message was that there's objective data that suggests that the best thing we could do is a free market with individual liberty and individual rights. And then he went on to say that there's a moral structure here that is better too. That was what I loved about his speech so much. Yes. Unified the scientific um, uh, empirical approach with a moral argumentation. And he said both of these things together. And he said, I'm here to tell you that you're part of the problem. You know, freedom, damn it. And he left. Yeah. Yes. Right? So like that, you know, flew their coach. He's there with his staff. Like he's, he's there in a very different capacity. They also brought the Heritage Foundation CEO uh, there as well, who had who basically tore the place apart as well. So it, it is, um, they, they might be them trying to repair the brand by bringing in different voices. Mm -hmm. They failed to do that on a lot of those stuff, like that 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 science panel that I showed you. Everyone and, and agreed on everything. And that's on that my one, concern here. Right, that so. that's my my only critique really of yeah. this moment is, I want to be cautious that we don't just give the WF a pass because now they invited Javier Malay or the Heritage Foundation. That's it, it is it's, it's too embedded in the culture to, to hate the WEF. That's yeah. not going to happen. Well, like like what, what we end up ha having right here is we showed the clip of Klaus at the beginning saying that reactionary movements uh, d destroy faith in our collective vision. And then you have later that day, Javier coming in, collectivism is what destroyed my country and I'm here to abolish it all. It's very... So if it becomes... If it becomes if it transforms from a globalist cabal thing to more of an open platform awesome like, that doesn't bother me at all yeah i, right? I, don't, I don't see this being a thing that that influences the world economic forum and i, I don't have much you know fear that they're going to be corrupting javier malay but i do think that this is it's just an amazing moment where he's speaking truth to power and this speech to me is is now like right up there with something like i pencil as like a concise you know, yeah. impactful thing that we're going to, you know, if somebody's like, Hey, what's this libertarian thing or whatever? It's like, check this out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you only have 20 minutes to, to dive into this, like go here first, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that's what he just did. And, and I, I'm so grateful. Likewise. And we'll make sure that the speech is in the show notes and the version that is like dubbed over with AI. So it's, it's in English. Uh, but yeah, sort of you, in you the, his tone of voice. You don't have to deal with his Spanish, yeah. right. like with it, and then also the being translated. translation. It's just right. straight English in kind of his voice tones and stuff. It's it's pretty cool. For sure. Wait, just also just from a technological thing, 
that's awesome. Pretty it's really rad. Super cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, because that was one of our main critiques of like, or, or laments, I guess, is is we can't hear his speeches in English it's, without it's hard the for us subtitle to or them. Yeah. right. So I, I also before we you know uh, sign off on this topic, um, he mentions there's a very interesting history in Argentina uh, where they went from uh, a very command control economy dictatorship to a very free market economy back to you know a very Keynesian um, you know fascist sort of economy and um, for those of you out there who are you know into the history of this sort of thing I, I would just advise you to check out uh, Juan Bautiste uh, Alberti he's the historical figure that you know in the mid 1800s helped to to bring Argentina from uh, the depths of despair to one of the wealthiest countries in in the world, uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating history. So I don't know if we got time to go into it today, but he's one of history's true unsung heroes. Mm. So. so one of the other uh, favorite members of the show that we like to check out, uh, Zelensky was there, uh, and I watched his speech, and it was very interesting. And I just want to note this because I do think it's it is a signal. Um, Glenn Greenwald covered it too. He said it was like the whole, oh, like a delusional peace process thing. But one of the things I thought was interesting is how much Zelensky spent his time at the World Economic Forum justifying Ukraine not being able to actually push Russia out. Basically, he was his case was the people who gave us the weapons told us not to use them to escalate, and we couldn't therefore win. And so now we're having to pursue a peace process that is suboptimal because we didn't actually punish Russia as much as we could have. And that, that was his message to WAF. And, everyone, and I'm like, so, he, so he's blaming everyone who gave him money and weapons that they didn't win. Yeah, because they came along with a disclaimer that said, don't escalate. <laughs> when, <sighs> like, what would they have done? Like, what was their escalation plan? They're bombing Moscow right now, right? Like, what are we doing? What, what was the plan that they could have done that they didn't do? Right. He was very vague about that. Uh, but basically, he takes no responsibility for the failure. Uh, he takes no responsibility for anything else that's happened. And he just unwinds this crazy talk about how Russia wasn't really punished for their aggression uh, because America failed to believe that Ukraine was better positioned to actually punish them. I'm, I'm so curious about Zelensky because it started, he started out as such the, the darling of the like Western global globalist, you know, uh, consortium, if you will. And then, and now he's sort of like, it seems like he kind of went off the rails or maybe like got off the leash a little bit. And he's just like sort of this like, baby throwing a tantrum that he didn't get what he wanted <laughs> yeah and and he's railing against the people who were who were I, propping him up the whole time like I, what's i think he was a useful tool and he's no longer useful anymore yeah. now he's so just a just tool just discard him yeah and like, you do feel bad for the guy simple. like he was he was taken advantage of by a class of people you know probably on the behalf of the military industrial complex to funnel money and weapons and, and all these things into yeah, yeah not new yeah, yeah. Not and new. now and now he's still out there i mean understandably upset about the plight of his countrymen who they put on a bonfire and lit to secure the global rules, international order yeah, of yeah, America. But, but, and, he's, and, but he's not at the WEF saying like, and, and I didn't watch the speech. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe he did say this, but he's not there saying like uh, millions of, of young men in Ukraine died. He's saying we didn't punish Russia hard enough. It's like, he's lost in the sauce of like Putin, like, destroying putin yeah. not about the destruction of his own country i don't think he gives a shit about that frankly well, i don't yeah i think i think he i don't know about his motivation but he definitely you're right i mean there, there's a there's a component of it that he is trying to rationalize the way that the international global elite think of foreign policy yeah which is pawns on a chessboard not that the individuals matter at all 
Right? Yeah. And that's and that's exactly how the foreign policy establishment thinks of it. I mean, they're not they, they think of this in terms of degrading Russia's military power, right. not in terms of the generation of people now lost. Right. Uh, and if you see those stats, like you can see current Ukrainians by age demographic and that 20 to 30 range has plummeted. Yeah, it's um, gone. It's an entire generation gone. Well, and it's, it's also uh, worth noting, too, is uh, Zelensky was a main figure la- at last year's World Economic Forum. And he was like the star that everyone was talking about. He had the big, the, the big gigantic speech and stuff. And it's just a massive tone shift. If you go and watch that versus now, it's just like, whew. and no one, almost no one talked about Zelensky too. That's why I wanted to talk about it yeah. because it's, it was crazy to me that it WF happened and I didn't see it anywhere other than Glenn Greenwald covered it. And that was it. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's just the, the war in Ukraine has been completely usurped by what's going on in the middle East. Right. That's I mean, right. that's, that is the new media darling, the new, uh, war du jour mm-hmm. and yeah Zelensky's just yesterday's news right yeah no joke speaking of I mean we've got a lot going on over there what's oh how do we do the Yemen conflict in 10 minutes we're almost we're almost at two hour mark guys oh all right should we just do we just oh. marathon this monkey <laughs> no. marathon this monkey <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go get some more milk and cigarettes I'll be right back <laughs> <laughs> good to see you buddy yeah. Henri Peller and everyone editor and uh, founder of LibertyPortal.com. Founder of the Ramaswamy Tsunami. That's right. Coiner of terms. <laughs> and uh, yeah, go check out LibertyPortal.com and Liberty Portal at Liberty Portal on X. Uh, be right back, right? With the milk and the cigarettes? Okay. Bye, Dad. We'll see you in a few minutes then. See you, Dad. Okay, quick intermission. Dad has left to go get milk and cigarettes. He'll be right back. <laughs> and while he's gone, we're going to talk about the burgeoning conflict in the middle east that seems to just be kind of devolving and spiraling closer and closer to some kind of war with iran david what is the latest in that conflict where do we find ourselves in the middle east so we spent a lot of time and and long-term listeners will get the 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 context here so you have the the uh, event horizon of the things that we're aware of in the west and then there's a long slope after that that is invisible to most people unless they spend a lot of time, go out of their way to get a grip on. And this is the historical context of everything. Right, right. So you have like that, that uh, time slice bias problem. And then you also have, um, you know, when, when Archduke Ferdinand was murdered, no one knew World War I was going to happen, right? When an anarchist blew that guy up, it wasn't it, like looking back, we can see that the machinery of Armageddon was there. But at the time, people just thought, thought of it as well a security guarantee and a defensive alliance and all these other things all these components so since the uh what happened this week that would cause us to talk about this is pakistan has bombed iran killing seven people in iran because iran bombed them and then they did that because isis in pakistan bombed iran and then they were doing that because the houthis uh, that are supported by Iran are have been at war with Saudi Arabia over you know who controls the Middle East. Uh, well, that's why Iran's involved uh, since 2014. So, um, so that's telling the story backwards. If we tell it forwards, it looks very different. <laughs> but uh, that's that's why it is. Uh, basically, um, uh, Iran did a series of attacks across Yemen, uh, or not? Sorry, not Yemen. Uh, Syria, Iraq. And Pakistan all in one day, and it got a bunch of news stories earlier this week, and then later this week, Pakistan attacked them. Wild. So, and Pakistan is a Western ally, correct? Yeah, generally, you could ally. 
frenemy? I mean, it's difficult. It, Pawn? It's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, a vassal state is not exactly right because they are a nuclear state, um, but they're, they're, they're definitely... Um, they're closer to us than Iran is, right? We've been in a Cold War with Iran pretty much since, you know, Operation Ajax. So let's step back. I mean, obviously, we're going to go into the, the historical stuff, but just so we have a clear timeline of like kind of where things have gone with regard to the Middle Eastern conflict since uh, the the uh, Israel-Hamas uh, conflict started. Mm-hmm. Yep let's lay that out a little bit. We've had, I think the thing that people have probably seen the most in the news or are aware of is, is maybe like these container ships that are going through the red sea that are getting attacked and bombed by the Houthis. That's pretty primary to this. What's the, what's the greater context of the conflict where it is now in the timeline moving forward, just so we have a clear picture of that. Right. Uh, This will be helpful. And I'll kind of talk over it while you do it, Kyle, could you just bring up a map of the red sea? Because uh, it really makes it clear. And we did this a little bit last time. And after we covered it, I was like, man, did we cover it well enough? Did I really? So this is why we're talking about it. Okay, so um, after the October 7th attacks, the response from Israel, you know, we've talked a little bit about like how the air war and how the response and the bombing campaigns be interpreted by the world. So the um, there's been a conflict since 2014 between Yemen, which is, you know, controls an area of the horn of of uh, southern peninsula of Saudi Arabia of, of the Arabian Peninsula as it goes towards Africa. In fact, many people actually forget that Yemen isn't an African country; it's a Middle Eastern country because you have the Red Sea right there. So, you so have, this is you're talking about this very southern end of the Red Sea, this little pinch point, right between uh, whatever that country is, which I think might be Djibouti. I, yeah. I believe it's Djibouti, yeah, right. yeah. my favorite hey. African country. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that sliver that goes through the Sinai Peninsula into the Red Sea and out there, the, a lot of trade goes through that. We talked about that last week. Now, what, what's going on is there's been this fight going on the Suez Canal. Is that what I'm talking about? Yeah, Suez. Um, that goes, that as container ships are going through there, these pirates are going through, are, are, are attacking these ships. Uh, we're talking Russian, uh, French, uh, tons of different ships that have been going through. The U.S. Uh, at the very, in October, actually, responding to the October 7th attacks, sent, you know, uh, naval, a naval fleet. Yeah, like, like a carrier, carrier fleet, group, yeah. Uh, to the Mediterranean. We've now also sent a carrier group to the Red Sea. So we're deployed all over this area in order to fight these these guys. Now, We've been involved in Yemen since 2014. So in a, in a conflict in Yemen that has killed almost a half a million people, uh, about 4 million people displaced, one to, uh, at, one, at the very beginning, 1 million, now 24 million people at near starvation, uh, water uh, deprivation, or some kind of material crisis, meaning they don't have access to medicine, they don't have access to cleaning supplies, they don't have access. And this co- is all in Yemen, correct? All in Yemen wow. since 2014. So a huge, before, I, and I tried to say this before, but I don't think I really communicated the scale. Before the bombing campaign in Gaza, Yemen was the number one humanitarian crisis in the world by far in orders of magnitude and size. And like one of the poorest countries in the world, right? Yeah. And in the poorest country in in the Middle East. I think lowest life expectancy, I think for a period there too. Wow. It was like them in Haiti. Already. Yes. So it is, it, it was a huge crisis that, you know, has become a focal point because of these Yemenis pirates. Right. And one of the interesting things there, if you just Google, Yemen pirate TikTok. You'll find oh, all these. I was young, just going to find that. I, I yeah, tweeted that. It is a wild moment where 
the internet is connecting people so much that you got these guys with I don't know I don't know how they have internet solvers, but they're in the Red Sea, live streaming, capturing boats. The pirates are live streaming. Yeah, or or yeah. you know, like or just Gen doing, Z pirates basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are they doing like dances on the deck uh, of the boat? I know. Boat, I like, know. I tweeted it out. A I few haven't days seen ago. any dances. No. <laughs> oh yeah, here it is, right here. Just a uh, casual zoomer TikToking. Oh, oh sorry. This is just his travels. He just. So these guys have been what? at war in their country since 2014. So uh, that is most of their lives, right? These young 18, 17, 16 year old kids. Uh, who are now, you know, in an effort to drive attention and punish the world for the actions of Israel in Gaza are attacking these container ships to, you know, to take advantage and, and draw attention to what they want to draw attention to. Wild. So that's the that's sort of the chronology of, of kind of where we're at to this point. Right. That's like that's that's the recent history of it. Uh, the longer term history is why are we and the question is, is why are we at war in Yemen? Like what? Yes. What is going on there? And what what's U.S. interest in Yemen? Great question. Obama said we have to placate the Saudis. That was, that was his exact quote. Um, is, that, is that an exact quote? Yeah, the exact quote was uh, in order to pl- placate the Saudis. And this is when they, because Yemen was being brought more into prior to 2014, was being brought into the kind of economic overreach of the West. And they're just like, you guys specialize in coffee. That'll be your thing. You're Yemen. the coffee guys. Yeah. And then... Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia was really upset with Obama being like cozy with Iran. And they're just like, yo dude, shouldn't do that. And then Obama's like, okay, in order to placate the Saudis, uh, block off all trade to Yemen and their entire economy was coffee. And that, that you, that's not enough sustenance for people to eat, you know? Right? Yeah. So uh, if they were previously like that's, that was their export and then they were making all their money on that so that they could buy food because mm-hmm. you can't eat coffee. I mean, you can't, but it won't sustain you. Not uh, the greatest. Not the best idea for like the longevity and health yeah. of a nation. Which, which which ended up causing hundreds of thousands of people dying from like shitting themselves from bath from bad uh, health. A the, cholera it, outbreak. Cholera the outbreak, largest yeah. cholera outbreak in the in in the, in the last century happened in Yemen in this time. That is wild. It's I want to know why outbreak. why uh, working with or trading with Yemen. Uh, was too cozy with Iran. Why that was upsetting to okay. the Saudis? So, Are they attached me, to Yemen and Iran? It's the Iran nuclear deal. That's what I. That's what I. That's what Saudi Arabia didn't like. Now understand that you have to understand. We've had a special military relationship with Saudi Arabia since FDR. Um, so <laughs> that goes back to World War One. <laughs> so everything in the Middle East always goes back to two things: World War One and the Sykes Pico Agreement. So World War One, Lawrence Arabia goes and he says, "Hey, Middle East." You have all these Arabs and you're being controlled by Turks. And rather than being unified by religion, you should be divided by ethnicity in this way, right? So the Ottoman Empire, we're going to rise up all these Arabs and we're going to go take that. And they made all kinds of promises to them. And then afterwards, they screwed them. They said, no, we're actually going to do Israel and it's going to be controlled by the British. And no, actually, we're going to do all these different things and you're going to get maybe some countries, right? But but the Sykes-Picot Agreement divided the Middle East in a way that would prevent any one ethnic group from gaining too much power 
to like sort of prevent another Ottoman Empire. That correct? was one of the goals. One, one of the strategic goals of the West okay. with that agreement. Yeah. I mean, that's so clear now. I don't know how you could disagree with that at this point. I'm not familiar with any other really side to that at this point that sure. hasn't already been debunked. It, what I see is is broadly is and the Middle East have like resented that in some ways, but the Saudis are one of the examples of the people who mostly benefited from that. Mm-hmm. In that there was a large mo- mostly support uh, by America, especially after World War II, of the Saudi family, which is the Saudis. Okay, so this is Arabia. It's Saudi Arabia because the Saudis control it. Right, so we actually named the country, and then we all use the name of the country as if that's what it was. They'd be like thinking of America as Biden America, right, or oh. Trump America, or something like that, rather than the United States of America, or you see what I mean, like, or, yeah. or naming the British Isles after the the Queen or King, yeah, uh, last name. Um, we don't do that, but they're doing that in this case. So we've had this special relationship. One, and to get, put you in context, of what it means in the Middle East, the special relationship with the West between Saudi Arabia, one of OBLs, Osama bin Laden's. I might get a censor. <laughs> uh, rallying cries for international jihad as he was kind of making his argument throughout the 80s and 90s to the West about why they should take on America and the West was the stationing of troops, of American troops and American, you know, diplomats and people like that in Saudi Arabia, right? In their holy land, hmm. right? So this is, this is, if you look, you see Mecca right there at the very center of the map, Yeah, right? This is, this is where Islam comes from. That's where the big rock is. Right. They all go uh, make pilgrimages to. So that, that idea that there's like a violation of their holy site is just fundamental to a conservative worldview that sees as sacredness and space and boundaries and, and, you know, that like um, psychological drama that's playing off in the, uh, in the Muslim mind is a big part of the driver of, you know, the rejection of the West by the Muslim identity across the Middle East. And a big part of that, why it expresses itself in terrorism, why it expresses itself in piracy is because that's the best you can do when you have an overwhelming force that can bomb you from outer space or at least very high altitudes, right? Yeah. Um, and then they control your governments and they control the boundaries of the governments. You know, you're a Kurd. You don't get a country, Kurdistan. Sorry, you're split between Iraq, Syria, and Iran, and, and Turkey. You're all over the place, Kurdistan. Sorry. You know, like all those ethnicities aren't recognized. And then mm-hmm. you can be used as a political tool for the higher figures, right. which is all the Kurds ever are all the time. So it's always like, oh, look, but the Kurds. And then we just like abandon the Kurds after, <laughs> yeah, after we're done right. using them. And we just we just throw them away, right? right. Postunes are the same way um, in uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Same deal. But yeah. Houthis in this case, right? So the Houthis are uh, a my, uh, ethnic minority in Yemen who um, it's very complex. We don't want to get into all of it, but alongside the, there's a couple other things that happened in 2014 that's alongside the uh, the deal with, with uh, Iran on nukes. Obama makes the deal with Iran on nukes. That ticks off the Saudis. They then say, hey, we have a new prince who's coming up that is looking for, uh, and this is uh, one of Scott Horton's theses, so don't quote me on this, but you got to go look at him. He's done a lot of great stuff on this, that one of the new princes that are coming up kind of needs some clout making, uh, as, and they have an excuse, which is their neighbor, Yemen, just to the south of them there, is, um, uh, has a rebellion going on where this Houthi minority is fighting the central government. <coughs> Um, there's a bunch of betrayals, a bunch of people flip back and forth as this goes along, but effectively what happens is they draw America in as support. Let me go over what support means here. Everything from like, if you read some articles, you just see like, oh, they're just support. We're just supporting them. We're just like, we're like, it's like emotional support. Like, hey, keep up the bombing, you know? No, no, no. 
No, no, no. We are fueling their jets, right? Yeah. We're we're arming their jets. We're literally attaching the bombs to their jets because we are specialized in training that and they're not. Wow. Right? We are literally like tuning the engines on their jets and like uh, providing naval support across uh, what's the Gulf of Aden? Is that what it is? Yeah. It's, yep. it's, it's it's on the other side of where those are narrowest as it comes out into the um, Indian Ocean. And yeah. Um, well, and, and with some of Scott Horton's uh, reporting <laughs> as well. It, there seems to be evidence that we also have American soldiers in some of the jets. There's been evidence of really? that as well, yep. which which probably suggests training and things like that, right? Certainly. And a big part of this is, as you said, is that you know there's the trade situation, and then there was a blockade from that. So what happens is, like, if you read the the the, the more typical response, you read the Wikipedia, it says it all started when the Houthis took over the capital of Yemen, right? And that's it. That started the civil war, and that's it. Um, now, it's important that it's the Houthis are Shiite rebels in a very Sunni place, right? So Sunni and Shiite are the two different kind of branches. There are other ones, but those are like the two big ones in Islam. So in Iran is Shiite. So who's funding the Shiite militias in Yemen? Probably Iran. Why would Iran and Saudi Arabia be have this conflict? It goes all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> One side was Sunni and the other side is Shia. And now that they're it. no longer unified, they're fighting, right? And they're trying to fight for regional dominance. They're mm-hmm. fighting for all the classical like foreign policy reasons that two powers that are trying on the come up to try to control their security you know, dilemmas, um, why they'd be doing that. Well, and, and for the audience as well, if you don't understand the difference between Sunni and Shia, this is a very deep religious aspect that goes back to like the first generation after Muhammad, it's, it's who is the rightful heir to Islam? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the correct heir to the prophet Muhammad? Like that's how deep this religious strife goes between Sunni and Shia. Super fundamental mm-hmm. disagreement. Yeah. So they, they, they're, they're kind of have this proxy war going on. Um, and this enormous humanitarian crisis, like I said, almost a half a million deaths over this t- period of time, 4 million people displaced. We talk about the, uh, people who are fleeing the Middle East into Europe and into other areas in there, even going to Canada or to South America and then coming up to our border. One of the reasons why this happens, guys, is because we just, we were in, instrumental in displacing 4 million people in Yemen who then fled. And where did they go? They went to Africa and then they tried to find a way over to America's and come to the richest place on, the, on earth. You, don't, you lost your house. Where do you go? You know, so somewhere else. Yeah, right. And so hopefully somewhere better. Yeah, right. right. Ideally. So, and I'm not saying like that legitimates the Biden's some border policy or anything like that, but it does explain it. Like, where are all these people who are seeking asylum coming from? Well, our policies in South America are not good, and they've been destructive for a very long time. We're dismantling countries like in real time. Yes, the the, the, the actions of the CIA in Guatemala, going all the way back to the 1970s, can explain a ton of people leaving Guatemala over that period of time and coming to America. Because you know, why wouldn't you if you got displaced by the by a military junta? Uh, and then in the case of Africa and the Middle East, a lot of the migrant crisis across Europe has been explained by our war in Iraq and our war in Afghanistan and all the all the destruction caused by that. A million people dead because of that action. So and then, you know, millions of people displaced because of bombings. So with this, you have this huge humanitarian crisis. Uh, a whole generation of people are pretty much raised in their latter half of their childhood. Now, young men in war with Saudi Arabia and what, what they see as America and the West, the broad you know, um, architecture of the West in a Shiite militia. So those folks are now attacking everyone's ships who come through the area, um, including Russia, uh, French, 
a whole bunch of other ships of, of people pretty much moving anything from Europe or uh, northern Atlantic trade uh, over to China or v- going back the opposite direction. Is it true that Chinese ships have not been attacked or have they also been attacked? I haven't seen anything that said the Chinese ships. I don't know what that is. I, there's there's a lot of, a bunch of coverage this week was about like increased protection. Different people are doing different things for that. Some of it's private protection. Some of it's like the U.S. military. Well, because one, one thing that would be, or that could be a factor there, right, is if, if Iran is funding the Houthis, Iran and China are both in BRICS. So you could see that there might be an aversion to attacking your allies' ships in that case, right? But the other guys are, uh, ships are on the table. Although I guess the anomaly there is that Russian ships have been attacked. Is that correct? Yeah, right. And like, keep in mind, this is, these are, these are militias, right? Like Iran's not, this is another thing. They're not like dictating their activities. They're maybe giving them money or weapons or whatever, but they're not saying don't shoot them, but you can shoot them. Yeah, right. There's, there's probably loose rules, but there's not like command and control. They don't think of this like risk, right? Think of this as much more decentralized. Sure. Um, Additionally, there was China was instrumental in a normalization of relations agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran before October 7th. Mm. Right. So all these things kind of stop you. Abrahamic records by the American president uh, by by Trump. Sorry. (laughs) Just forget it. He must not be named (laughs) (laughs) for the algorithm. Sorry. (laughs) An American president (laughs) of some sort. He had orange skin. (laughs) You got me. China. Oh, I got you. I got you. China. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's he's cutting this deal basically saying taking Palestine, taking the the Gaza, but Palestine largely off the table for all these um, Middle Eastern, Western associated countries. Everybody is kind of falling like dominoes to that effort. That creates the incentive for October 7th to happen to redirect the Muslim mind away from other, you know, conflicts and interest and like things that they're concerned about and, you know, just getting becoming more wealthy, becoming more middle class, becoming the things that, you know, regular people want across the Middle East into this drama again of the Israel-Palestine conflict and this story that from their perspective, not saying what my perspective, just just trying to fairly categorize how they think of it as a Islamic land that was then taken by the West in a Western vassal state called Israel, where they imported all these people and then now control, control it as a Western colony of sort. That's how they think of it. So they want to redirect it there. And so that's why that was always the fear, right? Of why this might accelerate into a world war one like scenario where a regional conflict grows and grows and grows. And this is another component of that. Two more aspects of that. This has diverted shipping around the Horn of Africa for both the, you know, the purposes of avoiding piracy, but also avoiding the pirates shooting at each other or other people shooting at the pirates, Um, as well as a bunch of attention across, like if you check Al Jazeera and other sorts of Middle Eastern news, um, the International Criminal Court and War Crimes trial against Israel is getting tons of coverage there, but we don't talk about it at all in the West. Interesting. So it's all over, you know, British and, you know, Middle Eastern and African news, but we don't really talk about it here. So uh, South Africa brought this to an international court saying Israel is guilty of war crimes. They yeah. brought this this case. I, I heard, I remember hearing that it seems like their case is pretty good. Is that true? Well, you know... I'm not going to tell you what I think here. Just going on what on the public 
officials said, right? Um, I'm not familiar enough with like the details of the case or what the standard is uh, for this sort of thing. It is a pretty broad standard for like genocide and things like that in the international court. It's like everything from like taking people's kids away and educating them, which is, uh, I could see a form of cultural genocide. Sure, that. absolutely. Um, especially as the Westerners, we really get kind of that, you're sensitive to that, uh, to like mass killings, right? So everyone thinks of um, Hotel Rwanda as an example of that mm-hmm. or um, the Holocaust, of course. So those sorts of scenarios, are they doing that? Well, you do have uh, declarations from Israeli officials, no offense, Bennett, of them saying things like, <laughs> we don't care about accuracy, we care about damage, right? Things like that that are going to be used against Israel in this court. And they, don't, they don't care about being accurate with who they're targeting. They care about inflicting maximum possible damage. That's what they said on live television. Wow. Right? Like, and and there, there have been other, there's lots of circumstantial evidence. It's, it's difficult because you have to, I don't know what standard of evidence you have to prove it at, but it is a huge drama that's playing across the Middle East. And so like, this is once again, it's about the air war more so than about the physical war. It's about like people's impression, like the mental space mm-hmm. is 10 times the size of everything else in this space. It's the info war or propaganda war. Info war is a great word. Yeah. Where'd that come from? I don't know. <laughs> Some weird. Came up with that. He has the documents. <laughs> in the United States, the Senate killed a measure to scrutinize Israel's human rights record in holding back aid if with under that scrutiny. Uh, 11 senators voted in favor of it. Uh, this is Bernie Sanders-led um, resolution um, to force you know, Congress to address Israel's record on, on this question. So as you're looking at it, you're saying, wow, this is, this is like, and, and it's interesting because the right wing does not, is not paying attention to any of this, right? He's not seeing this on Fox. He's not seeing it anywhere. You can find it in Intercept. You can find a couple art, uh, like news reporters talking about it, but it's largely like avoiding, I think, the corporate press overall. They're just not talking about it. So, Do you have a, an impression as to why that is? support Israel. Right. And just overall. It doesn't make Israel yeah. look good. Even talking about it now, I have a hard time like trying to frame it in a way that's like trying to be neutral towards Israel here. I don't, I'm not saying I know that they are committing these things. Uh, I have my impressions, my opinions and stuff like that, but just trying to say it neutrally as like a, an exercise and trying to present it fairly from that side. And I don't know how I could frame it in a more generous fact that there's non-trivial amount of evidence, a non-trivial amount of um, accusations that seem grounded in reality. Uh, and it isn't all just made up, right? Like it's there. Uh, and then when you look at the numbers, sure amount of people killed, sure amount of kids killed, reporters, doctors, hospitals bombed, things like that. And I, there might be good reasons for all of that, Israel supporters, but it's a real problem when you look at the optics, not to mention the international regime here. Now, why would South Africa be the ones to bring this? It's complicated. Well, also <laughs> another BRICS nation. Yeah, also another BRICS nation. And then, and then there's, you know, obviously the internal domestic politics on the left. The leftists are all, uh, I mean, the Biden administration has all these staffers quitting because of his Israel policy. He has a huge problem with young people right now in his electoral politics with this. Bernie Sanders comes out and gets smashed by his base for the last, I don't know how many months it's been, since October. And he's finally, this week, finally came out with some kind of red meat for him to try to get them to do a little bit on it, um, on on this thing, because he's been supportive of Israel otherwise. Um, in response to October 7th. So just so I'm clear, you're you're saying that Biden has been having trouble with young people leaving his campaign because they aren't doing enough to support the Palestinians. Not just his campaign, his official staff in the White House. Yeah. Wow. Like you got people who made it to the freaking White House, which is like the top of like, if you're a political hack, like you're on the hill, you're on the hill. 
And then you got these people who are like turning down that job and walking away because of the Israel policy. It's that big of a deal uh-huh. to that demographic of American political electorate on the left. And it's, not, I mean, it's kind of crazy to me that talk radio is not talking about it more. Or yeah. just like the right isn't yeah. because it's an interesting moment. I mean, yeah, you'd think they would capitalize on any amount of political turmoil within the White House or the Democratic yeah. Party. It's gotten a little bit, but I just I'm just surprised at how little. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's gotten nearly as big as it should have. So there is that. There's a whole bunch of you know. I mean, uh, it, it's it's crazy because we kind of divert away from foreign policy a little bit. We come back and it's like all these things have developed and moved. Um, but the uh, um. Just holding up, just even you know, like, uh, and the, this demonstrates just how unpopular it is. Only eleven senators out of eight out of a hundred, you know, voted for this very reasonable thing from their perspective, right? Which is, we shouldn't give them aid if they're committing a war crime. <laughs> we should at least have a report. Yeah, like that's, yeah, that's like, what the resolution. It's is. a lot like the it's a lot like the Ukraine spending. It was just like, hey, we, maybe we should just know where the money's going. And people are like, nah, we can't know that. We don't have time for that. And they just voted down. Right. I have to imagine <clears throat> that there are America first. Uh, senators on the in the group of 89 that voted against it um i'm not sure i was just scanning through the article and like i even saw mike lee was against it um because if because if that's the case complicated relationship with the right wing and israel well and if that's the case there's a lot of donor dollars that exist there and if that's the case then how how do you reconcile the idea that we shouldn't have insight and clarity into where american taxpayer dollars are going with regard to israel and because there's a lot the of donor first dollars agenda. right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's, yeah. that's the that's the dirty little truth of it is the yes. Israel lobby is very powerful. But what I'm trying on to bring both sides of the aisle, and right. what I'm trying to bring light to for people that yeah. might be listening is that you need if if you care about America first, if that is your rallying cry, if you're a part of that cohort, great. Hold your representatives accountable to being honest and transparent about that, mm-hmm. right? Because that's a conflict. That's a cognitive dissonance that shouldn't be allowed to exist, in my opinion. Well, and, I, and that's I'm, no opinion on right or wrong on Israel's part or anything like that. Right. It's just but consistency. Uh, like most things, start at first as values and then become political values by like a form of osmosis, right? It's like a blood-brain barrier yeah. transfer, right? There's like a value at the have that's pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian plight, right? And those like values come first and then secondarily to that or every, every fiscal value for all these folks. For sure. So I think um, for folks like Mike Lee, who I have a ton of respect for, you know, like he's, he's negotiating between these two different values that are probably at stake. Uh, and, you know, some of it might be donor pressure. Some of it might be media pressure. I mean, God, like, and Western media just doesn't seem interested in the story, um, no matter how important it is in the global scene. Uh, and no matter how much the real tragedy, no matter how much not knowing about it inhibits you from understanding anything in the Middle East at all. Yeah. Like you get, you don't get, you don't know why the Houthis are attacking us right now. If you don't know about Israel, Palestine or about the war crimes trial or about any of these things. Yeah. Well, well and it, the Overton window, at least within the right is shifting now because of people like Vivek or Tucker Carlson, where they're, they are taking a little bit more of a America first approach as you were just describing it, mm-hmm. where there is becoming this, like, like even Tucker will be like, I don't really have a dog in this fight of the Israel. Like it sucks what's going on over there, but it's, America's falling apart and that be, that's becoming the narrative right now. So like yeah. you are starting to see that creep in, but it's going to be much more the young folks of the GOP that are going to kind of start to have that banner where I think the boomers listening to talk radio types like Mark Levin or, you know, those types, they're still going to be captured in this area of 
Israel good no matter what Benjamin Netanyahu's like the second coming of Jesus kind of thing, right? Right. Like obviously the Bible says that the Likud party is the is the rightful heir to Israel, <laughs> right? Like that, like that is kind of where they are right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think that's a totally unfair way to think about it. A lot of people have very narrow vision here on this, and they're not really interested in a wider one, mm-hmm. or 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 trying to just even be accurate. Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. Wild. So anyways, there's foreign policy. Oh yeah, one more thing. Uh, we were completely right about Gonzalo. Gonzalo, Gonzalo Lira. Lira. Yeah, he was the journalist in Ukraine that he had a big Twitter thread uh, back last summer. Yeah, which saying, we covered. Yeah, we, we covered it. Um, and he died in prison. American producer, American videographer um, who went to Ukraine uh, some time ago because he had a romantic relationship with a woman there, became his wife, and then... He was also a dating coach at one point. And it's strange that so many outlets reporting his death mentioned that. Hmm. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, apparently. Not weird. journalist, but dating coach. Okay. Well, and then and then Putin propagandist would oh, often sure. come after that, right? This puppet of Putin. And I'm not sure. I've watched some of his stuff when we were covering it last time, and I never found Putin apologism. What I found were people was him explaining the incentives that the Western West established for Russia to prevent NATO from coming into Ukraine. Um, so... Yeah, and then David Sachs tweeted about it uh, this week. He said, Gonzalo, ah, I can Gonzalo say Lira, if I'm arrested, I will die in a Ukrainian prison. Help me. Um, like he's saying that Gonzalo said that. Then Gonzalo gets arrested. He dies in a Ukrainian pri- prison. And then all the pro-Ukraine accounts are saying he died from, from smoking 40 cigarettes a day. So Yeah, not obviously not a, not a generous or, or fair take at all. Um, this also doesn't mention what we mentioned before, which was he was imprisoned initially for speaking ill of Zelensky and the Ukrainian regime mm-hmm. and was tortured in prison by his own account, saying that he had inmates who had ostensibly been sort of put up to this by the regime there, like scratching his the white of his eye with a toothpick mm-hmm. and, and saying to him, like, can you still read books if you can't see or if we take your eyes out, basically, like really heinous stuff. He gets out of prison, right? And the story is he is trying to get out of the country and he's he's doing putting videos on twitter right like i'm gonna go to the border i'm gonna try to get out if if they detain me then i will go to prison and i will die and and uh so here i go basically and that was twitter thread is his him laying out the exact plan of getting out of the country right and basically saying if you don't hear from me again you know what happened and the the saddest thing about it is that we didn't hear from him again until this last week when it when it came out that he had been uh, killed or had 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 died in prison. The, so the real tragedy here is you have an American journalist, Alusu uh, Krushmanov. Krush. No, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't sound very American. Kermashevra, <laughs> um, who is a Wall Street Journal, um, I think, contractor, uh, who is imprisoned in Russia, and we've rightly said, "Hey, this is a huge deal," and the State Department's trying to get him free. Uh, we've said that in a, if anyone tries to transport something through the Red Sea, we're going to send a battle carrier to, to defend them. Meanwhile, we're giving billions of dollars to a country to defend it, and we can't say, hey, also, could you guys like just give us that reporter who's an American citizen? Yeah. You know, so like that's that's the crazy moment, and we're doing this, ironically, to defend democracy while the democ- democracy is killing Americans in their prisons. Shibboleth. So, democracy shibboleth. isn't real. It's a magical word. It's a magical word. And obviously we, um, well, we have a lot of problems to solve uh, internationally with regard to how other countries 
are treating our people and we uh we do a lot more for a basketball player in prison for uh bringing a weed cartridge to, to, to russia <laughs> yeah. than we do for a journalist yeah. speaking ill of uh america's ally ukraine so really sad story and obviously you know uh our thoughts go out to his family um and you know there should be some kind of justice for this but i i don't have a lot of hope for that uh, unfortunately i hate to end on a on a black pill moment but i feel like we've done a really good show here and we've got another great one coming up after this so um any final thoughts before we wrap guys oh it's great thank you guys and uh, apologies that we had to go past where dad was here and he had to leave. Yeah. well that's all right we're gonna extend our continued thanks to our friend Henri, who <laughs> he, he's out leading the ramaswamy tsunami right now as we speak outside <laughs> that's right that's right headed to a uh, a rally near you so follow liberty portal on twitter go to libertyportal.com we'll see you guys in the next one thanks for tuning in to human reaction help us fight internet censorship by liking commenting subscribing following and sharing the show with your friends to find us around the internet visit linktree.com slash human reaction pod 